Okay, welcome back from lunch. So what we're going to do now is begin with um, some questions and response and discussion, uh, building on your experience at lunch. Um, and we have a microphone that will be able to go around. Uh, so if you have questions, and what I'm going to do, just so you understand, um, I'm going to use your questions, like the really great questions that came up earlier, um, which are questions about information, questions about challenging the ideas, presenting your own perspectives, and try to make them concise so people can hear the essence of what you're saying. You'll have a microphone, so I don't need to repeat them. Uh, but then what I'll do is I'll use that not just to respond to your question, but to build it into the conceptual framework. The other thing we'll be doing this afternoon is we'll be looking at um, the, some of the mindset skill exercises uh, and then looking at attachment and in particular looking at challenges to attachment because about a third of the population doesn't have secure attachment and what that means uh, and then looking at some of the basic challenges that happen. So what we've covered so far is basically a deep view of the essence of adolescence and the changes in the brain which is basically the first half of the book so now we'll be doing the second half, including the mindset exercises. But let's begin with, with any uh, reflections you may have from your conversations at lunch, uh, and we'll go from there. Hello. Um, I was wondering, um, I have a son, and when he was um, 11, they said, oh, he's got ADD. And um, we put him on meds. And how does that factor in with this prevalence of children who are being diagnosed as hyperactive and attention and, and I think there are legitimate cases where they are but my son has taken himself off and there's been no drop in his grades and he seems the same <laughs> to me so mm -hmm. I'm just wondering and so I've honored that for him I've just said okay let's try it if you don't want to do it anymore let's give it a shot and see how it goes and I've just let him call the shots on it yeah um based so, on his own intuition of what he felt he needed right, so the question is first about attention deficit and what that that means so it's a clinical question and, you know, um, the notion that you have a challenge to be able to focus attention, sustain attention, complete a task, all those things are under ADD. And then if you also have hyperactivity, ADHD, um, it's a, a big discussion in the field of child and adolescent psychiatry of what that actually is, if it's many things and what's the cause of it and all that. So that's a huge discussion. Um, the general teaching is that if you have challenges to attention, uh, they present themselves before you're seven or eight years of age, so they, they need to be present earlier on. Um, and then about a third of kids who have attention challenges at that early age will completely lose it by the end of adolescence. They will grow out of it. A third of kids will lose a lot of it, and a third of kids won't lose any of it. And you just don't know. So it's really reasonable during adolescence to try and see how it goes, because you might be in the third that doesn't need it. But the additional thing to, to say is that we did a study at the Mindful Awareness Research Center led by Lydia Zlowska, and it was, a, it was an open study, meaning we knew what the intervention was, where we took older adolescents and adults with attention challenges, and we gave them mindfulness practices. And when we got the results of the improvement in their ability to focus attention, to avoid distractions, and to um, sustain their attention over long periods of time, uh, the results were startling. We took them to our colleagues who are pharmaceutical psychiatrists, 
And they said, oh, my God, what was the dose of that thing and what was the medication? And we said, well, it actually take away the C and put a T. And they go, what are you talking about? We said it was meditation, not medication. Um, so it's, the, it's, the, it's not a controlled study. So it could have been that it was our conviction that it would work that made it work. And it could be if we believed in purple popsicles, we could hand people with ADD purple, purple popsicles and they'd get better. Um, so it needs to be controlled. But the problem with that is that no one makes money selling mindfulness. Yeah. So pharmaceutical companies, you know, anyway, you can understand the politics of all that. So no one's done the follow-up study because there's no funding for it. But anyway, the, the open study is that way. So we know from other studies of mindfulness that it improves attention. So for anyone who's you know, on stimulants for attention deficits, I say, you know, uh, do, the, do the practices. Lydia Zlowska wrote a book. Um, I wrote the foreword to it called um, The Mindful Prescription for ADD. And so that's something that you know, anyone can benefit from. Yeah. Does that, does that help address the question? That's excellent. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. I'll send an email afterwards. That'll be longer. But um, I'm a therapist intern who works with Latino adolescents who are in or are going into gangs. And um, I speak to their parents in Spanish. And I speak to the kids in English. And the thing is that I only have so many sessions I can work with them. And um, the parents have their culture that's very different from their kids' culture. And the kids, I mean, I can say a lot of very positive things about the gangs, too. And so um, if I'm working with these families and I have a limited amount of sessions, I have this really basic question of, shall I start with the whole family? Shall I start with the parents? Or shall I start with the kid? And of course, that doesn't have an immediate answer, but that's, you know, something I might hope to gain some insight on as I read your book and maybe you have someone you can put me in touch with who has a lot of experience. Yeah, well, that's a really important question. Um, one thing is uh, Michael Mead does a lot of work, uh, so I would refer to his work with, with kids um, in gangs, um, so his work is fantastic. Um, Father um, Boyle, who wrote Tattoos on the Heart, uh, you know, does work in, in the L.A. Uh, area with kids who are in gangs. And his book would be, I think, a, very inspiring for you to, to look at. Um, the Homeboy Industries that came from that work, which was funded by the um, uh, Liberty Hill Group, which um, uh, we have close friends who are, are very active in that. You know, what they wanted to do was to build on the collaboration and the survival that comes from group associations and, and make it so it didn't have to be violent. So you can maintain the positive and lower the negative, and that's what they did. And those in, you, you probably know those industries are now, uh, at least in, in LAX, they actually now have a homeboy industry uh, cafe in, in the airport. And, uh, you know, so there are ways of turning, I mean, keeping the positive and transforming the violent aspects to it. Um, and, and that's not easy to do. It's easier to say than to do. Uh, so I would refer you to those people for, yeah. for, for work. It's very, very important work. And also, you know, just to, to build on this, where the talking stick is going around, I think there's someone there and there, um, you know, to, to honor that, you know, there is this really important process in adolescence of social engagement with your peers that isn't, feels like it's a matter of life and death. 
So that's part of the thing to not just uh, destroy that, but to, to honor that part. As we're going to the next person, let me, um, let me read. These are from our internet audience. Talking about Katie, uh, brain correlates are a good explanation. How about also considering a transpersonal approach, the inherent drive to unknown experience, the results of which could be self-destructive? So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's um, and I talk about this in the book on the section on, on drug use. You know, there's drug use for a lot of different reasons. One can be because your peers are using drugs. The other could be because your dopamine system wants to get a push from that. Uh, it can also be to, uh, to just get stoned. And it can also be to experiment and expand consciousness. So there are lots of different motivations behind drug use during adolescence. And I think that's what um, this person means by transpersonal, uh, the inherent drive to the unknown experience. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the issue of it being self-destructive, um, for example, the use of hallucinogenic jug- drugs, which don't activate dopamine, actually, so they're not addictive, but they expand consciousness. You know, for many people uh, who have participated in those, done in the proper setting with trusted peers, they can be a positive experience. In fact, you probably know that some of them are being used to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. So, it, the, 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 you know, as they say, the set and setting, the, the use of those drugs and the setting which is used can make all the difference between constructive or destructive. So I, I completely agree with that. Um, and just to finish up this last one, I wonder if the brain in adolescent mind looks different uh, in teens and other cultures. Yeah, and that we, we, I think I addressed that earlier. You know, the, this issue of... Um, how culture affects the brain, absolutely. And, and then uh, the follow-up is, I work with Latino parents of teens that feel completely disconnected to the emotions of their teens because they often had to work at a very early age. They believe they never had an adolescence um, as though having an adolescence um, is a luxury. Yeah, and uh, I, I was actually raised by a father who used to say exactly the same thing. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, the, the idea of um, is this adolescent period um, something that is a luxury? Uh, should kids go to work uh, right away? I mean, what's, what's going on here? Um, I'm trying to locate the place where this conversation happened. Oh, yeah. In a, in a um, group I run, uh, someone was raised on a farm, and he said, with all the siblings on the farm, when you hit 12, uh, you spent most of your time running farm fa- factory machinery. And that was it. And as far as he was concerned, he never had an adolescence. And now as his adolescents are growing up and he was able to work outside the farm, his kids have an adolescence. So, you know, certainly you can have family situations that make it so you have to take on adult responsibilities early on. And I, I'm not, I, you know, I don't know what to say about that. I mean... It would be intru- I don't know any studies that actually study the health of those folks and see if it's different from someone who went through an adolescence. It would be interesting. I'm not sure. I don't, does anyone know about any studies that actually looked at that systematically? But it would be interesting to know. It's a really interesting question, but it's a, it's a reinforcement of the idea that the setting you're in changes things. And, and this issue of immigration, too, is important to talk about. Um, some of the people at our Foundation for Psychocultural Research program that we have, the, the Culture, Brain, and Development program, um, when they were looking at adolescents who were children of immigrants, that is, these were the first, um, 
first-generation uh, Americans, and these are mostly kids from Latin America, they, it, to study the way they negotiated the um, cultural practices from the original country to now the, if you call them cultural practices in Southern California, I don't know what you'd call them, but anyway, the, the general way people do things in L.A., um, it was... Uh, it was kind of it was it was a big shock, and they actually found that the well-being of the adolescent was directly correlated to how well they were able to negotiate that difference. And it wasn't easy, uh, but they could they they could find a way to actually embrace some of the values of their parents, but also moving into the uh, American way of life. Um, I know for myself, uh, when I was an adolescent, one of my closest friends was from Southeast Asia, and. Uh, he had an amazing thing he said to me um, when we were getting to know each other. He said, you know, here's the difference between me and, me and you. He goes, I was raised in a culture where I think of myself as part of a forest. Mm-hmm. And you're also a tree, but you were raised in a culture where you think about your limbs and your leaves and your roots, you know, and we're both trees, but we live our life completely different. And what was really fascinating about it was he, for a long time, tried to become someone who was really interested in his bark and all this stuff. And, <laughs> it, 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 he, and I went kind of the opposite direction. So I don't, I don't know what the, the balancing act is. Well, we'll talk about that later. Anyway, he's probably watching this right now. Hi. <laughs> but I masked his identity. Maybe he's a woman. Maybe he's actually from Alaska. You don't know. Um, yes. I have just kind of a simple clinical question. I'm a psychotherapist and I work with teenagers specifically. And I liked what you were saying about when kids come from a pretty securely attached home base, you can really relate to them with that feeling felt sort of compassionate way. But when they don't have that background, it's so much harder to really, really connect with them in that way and drop into that feeling felt space with them. And I just thought I would ask if you could speak a little bit more about that. Oh, wow. That's, that's that. a whole day conference. Is that all? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's a really important question, and it relates to a, a number of people during the break uh, came up to me and asked that I address a couple things. Um, the experience of growing up in a violent culture, mm-hmm. the experience of growing up in a violent home, um, and the experience of growing up, just as you're saying, with, with yeah. not secure attachment. So if I might, let me use this question as an opportunity to actually lay the foundation for the attachment uh, process. And I do appreciate um, uh, a number of people came up to me afterwards and thanked me for keeping the attachment section in the book. Uh, and, I, and I really do appreciate that because literally, I mean, this book is just coming out. So I don't know what the response is. That's why the adolescents know. I keep on saying, email me when you read it. You know, I want to see what it's like for you. Because, you know, I had the, a test the test teenagers read it and then gave me feedback, but they never saw the final version. They just said, this is no good. You can't talk to us about us like this. And, and I took all their comments and made changes based on everything they said. So it would be really interesting to see. Um, and I don't know. I, I actually have no idea uh, how this is going to go down because, you know, there is no book for adolescents to read that empowers you to understand about your own brain changes. There's nothing actually that reviews these remodeling issues. There's nothing that allows adolescents and adults to actually do it the same. So, you know, I told, I told my wife that, you know, I didn't think um, that anyone would particularly read this except maybe some of our neighbors, you know. So, so, um, so I was kind of shocked. I mean, I'll, I'll just say this because you, you just ought to know. 
uh, I, I was totally in shock, and I don't know what to say about this, and I feel guilty about my other books, but this book hit the New York Times bestseller list in its first week. And what really shocked me was it was placed as a non-fiction book. You know, with all the, that is, no, I don't mean like it's fiction, but I mean, it, it could have been like with the diet books, you know, because it's self-help book, because there's a lot of self-help stuff in that. And then it got, it got number four of all books in the country. So it was amazing. So now the only thing that's really great about that, because I'm kind of in shock and it doesn't seem to make sense why the other books were ignored. Um, <laughs> I know that's a little neurotic. I need some help on that. Really, I, I was talking to my best friend from high school, who's still my best friend, and I called him up. He, he's a writer, and I said, you know, it's so weird. I found out, you know, I'm on the New York Times bestseller list, and I feel like nothing. So he was talking about it, talking about it, and then we realized I felt so guilty about the other books. Like, some with lots of children, why should that child get more attention? He was so sweet. He said, think of them as all related, and it's just like... Anyway, so, um, what was I talking about? So, no, but, but, but this, issue, this issue of the reason why it's important is because when people see that, they'll say, okay, maybe this is a book to pay attention to. And with the attachment section in there, it's, this is a huge thing. So I was about to address this because this question you're raising is so important. You get this foundation set up. And I think the reason why there hasn't been a book about, about all these things, but especially about the attachment piece for an adolescent to read is because... You're, you are changing a lot during your adolescence, but what we're saying is that you, anyone, not just you, but we all get formed in this first few years of life to set up these what are called models of attachment. So the way to think about it is you're born into the world and genetics and epigenetics kind of shape how you are at birth. And then you're going to have certain experiences with your caregivers that are going to shape your brain in specific ways that develop what's called a model of attachment. So everyone is born with the birthright to feel felt by their caregiver. And that's the four S's we said. That you have a birthright to feel seen, which means your inner life is seen, not just your outward behavior, um, but you're actually, you know, it means your feelings, what has meaning to you, what you're paying attention to. Those things are what I mean by being seen. So. So, like, you're, you're, you're being seen, you know, which is really um, a fundamental way of feeling felt. Then you're safe, right? So, safe, again, means you're protected from harm and you're not terrified by your parent. Because the whole foundation of attachment is, I'm going to reach out to you as my attachment figure so you protect me. And that's it's simplest. That's kind of what it's all about. And I will die if you don't protect me. So it's literally a matter of life and death. You are completely dependent on your caregiver. And then being soothed means I can't soothe myself, so I need you to calm me down. That's normal. And I use these interactions over time called dyadic interactions. A dyad is a pair. These interactions in the pair I use to mold my own regulatory circuitry. And then I get this overall model of security. So what I'm going to do is walk you through the four kinds of attachment that research has established and then look at how each one would influence your experience as an adolescent. And the reason that I'm so kind of nervous about uh, how people are going to take this book um, is because the attachment idea is not something that everybody grabs onto. 
And what I mean by that is some parents say that the way kids turn out is completely due to their genes. And then they get a few professors at very esteemed universities with very fancy titles who write very um, definitive books that say, for example, um, that parents have no impact on children except in the genes they give them. So it's a super controversial topic, even though there's a lot of science to support it. So you just need to know that it's not, it's not just like saying apple pie and everybody likes apple pie. You know, there are people who get really pissed off when you say that parents influence you. I know, it sounds... But so you just... It's, so it's, that's right there. That's a big deal. Okay, so for the U.S. population and for many countries that, that have been studied, the, the percentages are different, but we'll, we'll talk about the U.S. percentages. In the U.S., about um, 55 to 65%, so let's just be optimistic, let's say about two-thirds of the population has what's called a secure attachment. Some studies say it's getting lower, other studies don't, so it's controversial. But about two-thirds of people have secure attachment. What that means is generally you're seen, generally you're safe, generally you're soothed, so you have a model of security. And when those first three S's don't happen, it's repaired pretty rapidly, and in the repair, you develop security. So there's no such thing as perfect parenting, and I say this like over and over and over again in my books, and my kids always say, you know, why did you put examples of you looking like a jerk? And I say, because that's what people do. And if they write books about this, and that's fine. The issue isn't being a jerk. The issue is recognizing that you acted like a jerk and then repairing that. You know, that's the important thing. Repair, 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 repair. So instead of being a, a person who beats up on yourself and says, oh, I should have been perfect, and I should have been this, and I shouldn't have been that, where you're shooting on yourself, you, you really can invite yourself to be kind to yourself, love yourself, and in that compassion toward yourself, you can extend it to someone else. So security is not the same as perfection. This is what everyone needs to know. It is not the same as perfection. And if you, if you really embrace the intention for these S's, that's a really great starting place as a parent. And if you as an adolescent recognize, look, my parent did the best they could, um, it wasn't always ideal, but they have the intention. That's fine. Now, the intention is always there, as we're, we're going to get to. So what about the other third? And, and let's just finish these two-thirds. Generally, if you're in that fortunate two-thirds, you will meet your full potential. You'll be able to have good relationships with other people, which are mutually rewarding. You'll be able to balance your emotions and feel calm. You'll be able to go through adolescence with somewhat even keel way because you've set up a foundation of an integrated brain is the issue. Integrated relationships that permit, create security integrate the brain and give you a foundation that's not going to guarantee anything, but it's going to make it um, more likely that you're going to be able to do, do uh, a smoother job through adolescence. What about the third that didn't get that? So those fall into three different categories that can overlap, and you can have a little of each of these. In fact, you can have security and even some of these other ones. You can have a little bit of everything. So rather than think about it, which one am I? It's in which situations does that stuff come up in me? So these models of attachment uh, you can have with different caregivers, and even one caregiver can act in some pretty uh, different ways. So you can develop even with the same caregiver different models. So the first model we'll talk about is called the avoidant model. So the avoidant model is, I, uh, if I'm a kid, 
I go to my parent because I'm really upset and they ignore me. And I don't mean like they're neglecting me. I mean they, they're there. They're physically there. Maybe they respond to me. So I'm not being neglected. They just don't see me. Right? Severe neglect is a different sort of thing. This is just being uh, basically dismissed, if you will. I'm, I'm, I'm not being seen. I say, I'm really, you know, I'm really, really upset, and they act like I, didn't even, I wasn't even crying. It's almost like they, uh, they can't read my nonverbal signals. You know, the nonverbal signals are eye contact. Let's do this together so you know the nonverbal signals. Eye contact, say it. Eye contact. Tone of voice. Tone of voice. Facial expressions. Facial expressions. Posture. Posture. Gestures. Gestures. Timing. Timing. Intensity. Intensity. Some people want to throw touch in there, which is fine. Um, you know, touching someone. But these nonverbal commun- signals... Uh, reveal the inner nature of the mind. And interestingly, they're primarily sent and received by the right side of the brain, which is developing in the first 18 to 24 months of life. So it's really, really interesting that the right hemisphere doesn't have the kind of words I'm using right now to speak to you. It uses the nonverbal world. So if I were going to show you what it's like to communicate only with my left hemisphere, I'm going to give it a try. It would look something like this. This is years of development I'm trying to get rid of for a second. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me to come speak to you about the adolescent brain. It has some interesting changes that happen um, according to the first dozen years of life and the second dozen are different. Do you know what I mean? Like that. So it wouldn't, there wouldn't be eye contact, there wouldn't be, I mean, there wouldn't be facial expressions, you wouldn't see changes in tone of voice, there would be no gestures, there would be nothing about my posture, and the timing intensity of my response wouldn't be varied. It would be freaky. It would be like my experience in medical school. That's actually not a joke. Um, so, um, it, it turns out that the maps you make of other people's minds and even of your own mind are primarily in your right hemisphere. Autobiographical memory is primarily a right hemisphere job. And you know, what's really interesting about science is you can fight about anything. Um, Neuroscientists now are not allowed to say, apparently, um, that there's a difference between the left and right hemisphere. It is so fascinating. I was once at a meeting once where this very prominent neuroscientist got up there, showed that the right hemisphere was primarily responsible for the um, intentional regulation of affect. And, you know, the right hemisphere, I shouldn't say, you know, but the right hemisphere is more connected in the right cortical area to the limbic area, the brainstem, and the body. And since we're saying emotion comes from the body, the brainstem, and the limbic area, it shouldn't be that surprising that it's the right cortex, since it's more connected to that, is more involved in regulating it. Not not rocket science, maybe brain science, but not so complicated. So he shows 39 of 40 studies show it's the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, don't worry about it, the right prefrontal area that is doing this thing. So knowing the politics of all this, I get up to the microphone and I say, oh, thank you for that beautiful talk, which it was. I said, what's your feeling about those 39 studies being in the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex? He goes, I didn't say that. I said, well, just show your slide and you'll see you said it. He goes, no, I didn't say that. And he wouldn't show his slide. And he did say it. And I said, just, we have a recording of this. You can just play back the recording. He goes, no. 
He goes, the right and left are the same. So I talked to him about it afterwards. He goes, you know they're the same, Dan. You know they're the same. And right around that time, uh, a person who's now my friend, but in that time I didn't know him, a guy named Ian McGilchrist writes this incredible book called The Master and His Emissary, which he took 25 years to write about the difference between the left and right hemisphere and all the science that I was very familiar with. And this guy on the stage apparently was not allowed to remember or something. I don't know what it was. And I'm only saying this because if you go and you read the literature now in the last five years, you're not allowed to say what I'm about to say. And, and so when Ian wrote his book, we brought him over from England to speak at our conference because it was like a breath of fresh air. Well, what would Ian had to do in writing the book is he had to spend the first 25 pages not really apologizing, but explaining why in modern neuroscience, no one is willing to say there's a difference between the left and right hemisphere. Why is it? Yeah. But what about yeah. Jill, um, the woman who had the stroke of insight? Yeah, well, that would support what Ian is saying, what I'm saying, right. Right. You're not allowed... She's saying, but she's not... I'm talking about people who are card-carrying, accepted, you know, straight-line neuroscientists. So, so what... Um, why does this, this is a whole other discussion, but I'll just give you the, what Ian says, which I think is right. Um, and when I've talked to neuroscientists themselves about it, this is what they affirm, which is that it's, it's a very complicated technical issue, but when you do a functional MRI, you are studying blood flow changes in the brain. That's all you're studying. And if you give a person a task, blood flows to both sides of the brain. So the scientists say if blood is flowing to both sides of the brain, both sides of the brain are doing the task, which is just not true. That's not how the brain works. It has these things called, you know, um, uh, I forgot, they're balanced functions that inhibit each other. And if you're really going to activate one, you've got to actually actively inhibit the other one. It's very complicated. It's not so simple. So to say just because blood flow is the same, they're the same, doesn't make sense. So what the science is built on, sadly, is people who get you know, an injury to this side of the brain versus that side, tumors, strokes, bullets, all sorts of things you can have that we've known for about 100 years um, that are clearly defined this. And then when we're able to look inside the brain in various ways, in other ways, uh, you can actually show that the left and right are different. So I recommend Ian's book to, to show it. And there's a really fun 12-minute uh, summary of his 700-page book. Uh, if you want to just read the summary, watch the summary, go to RSA dot uh, divided brain or RSA slash divided brain and you'll get you'll get this fun cartoon that I think about 10 million people have watched. Um, it is it, you'll hear Ian's voice. It's just it's great. It's great. McGillchrist. It's Mick. So MC and then Gill like G.I.L. and then Christ. McGillchrist. Really, it's really good. I, I'm saying all this because for me to understand the, the, the brain changes in attachment, you need to understand the differentiated parts of the left and right hemisphere. Otherwise, for me, I wouldn't be able to make any sense of it from a brain point of view. It just wouldn't make sense. Now, there may be ways of making sense of it. I can't make sense of it. So, here, so that's why I'm giving that preamble of be careful because if you look at the neuroscientists, they'll say, that what I'm saying or what Ian's saying or what Jill Bolte-Taylor's saying is nuts. That's what they actually say. But I think there's a lot of evidence to show um, that it's true even if we are nuts. Um, <laughs> it's not nuts because we're saying these things. It's fine being nuts. Yeah, I don't mind being nuts, but what's that? 
That's where innovation comes from. Yeah, so, uh, so, let, let, so let's be nuts about the truth. So, so, here's, so here's how it goes. If I'm a baby and I'm crying, I'm sending out nonverbal signals to my parent. If my parent, just to be the extreme, this is going way too extreme because it's never like what I'm about to say, but just to give you a feeling of it, if you primarily lived in your left hemisphere, which can't interpret nonverbal signals too well, and you're with a baby who's crying, and you don't have much access to your own right hemisphere, what are you going to do with that baby's cries? Ignore. You ignore it. It's that simple. When I do couples therapy, and I'm working with a couple where I, I have one member of the couple, could be male or female, or female, female, it doesn't matter. This is, this is gender neutral. This is the other thing to say. Attachment categories are gender neutral. There is no this is that, you know, completely gender neutral. So if I have a couple and one member of the couple is, um, has this avoidant attachment history, that is they didn't develop their right side of the brain, they will have their partner crying and they will act like it means nothing. Because the left side of the brain, nonverbal signals carry no information. So we said that there's energy and there's information. Not all energy is information. And if you don't have the part of your brain activated to interpret the, inf the energy, it carries no information. But your right hemisphere will know that crying means your partner's in distress and you feel bad. But if your left hemisphere is the only hemisphere that's perceiving it, you won't pick it up. So it's not like you're a bad person, it's just you're like half a person. Half bad. I'm serious, no, not half bad, not even half bad, half good. But you got another goodness waiting to develop. I mean, so if you read the Mindsight book, you'll see the story of this 92-year-old steward, you know? And you'll see he came in with just basically half a brain. And so he wasn't depressed, and when I, you know, everyone thought he was depressed, I didn't think he was depressed, I thought he had a dismissing attachment from an avoidant attachment history. And I said, look, you're 92. You can go on living the way you're go living, but if you want, I will help you to live with a whole brain instead of half a brain. And he was up for it. And, this, and Stuart is still alive. Years and years and years later. I mean, he is, it, it is unbelievable. But the joy this guy has in his life when he, when he basically took a hibernating right hemisphere that had been waiting for almost a century to get the trust and connection, the part, presence to him, residence to trust, to allow that to, so he could, we could snag his brain, stimulate neural activation and growth. You know, this is where the acronyms come in. <laughs> Stuart, I'm going to play a part with you, so I snag your brain to have a faces flow, you know. I, I don't know if you've ever seen some, two, two actors decided to make fun of me on, on YouTube. Have you ever seen this? The ladies? Yeah, the ladies. Oh, my God. They... <laughs> They totally mock me, and, I, and someone sent it to me, I think, because they wanted me to like, defend myself. I thought it was hilarious. Totally made fun of me. No, they were actually very sweet. It was very sweet. Excuse me, I really need to get into a faces flow with you right now. You're not washing the dishes. And it was very sweet. So, okay. So, anyway, so this is the story. If I'm a baby, then and I'm being raised by someone who's got primarily one hemisphere at work. My right hemisphere, which is growing in the first 18 to 24 months of life, needs the stuff of signals sent from the right hemisphere of my parent. And if it doesn't come, I'm understimulated. So I grow by the stimulation that's coming into that hemisphere. And you see this in parents all the time. Ooh, baby, baby, right? You see it all the time. 
The nonverbal attunement is what we're talking about in the first 18 months of life, 24 months of life. It's crucial. Attunement, and this really gets to your question of feeling felt, this is the idea that I bring my whole essence, my well, essence, yeah, like we're talking about, I bring my presence, right, to the baby, and, and everything that's going to flow between us is going to allow this baby to feel felt by me. She or he is going to feel me inside of myself. She is in me. I don't become her, right? So like if she falls down and hurts herself, I don't fall down and go, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. No, I'm not mirroring her. This is why the word mirroring is not what we're talking about. It's resonating. So she can detect inside of me that she exists in an authentic way. That's what attachment is all about, right? So if you haven't had it from this avoidant point of view, it can become a problem. Yeah? Can, um, can the avoidant point of view develop, kind of come in after that early stage, like early adolescence? Absolutely. In this remodeling stage? Could you repeat that question? Absolutely, yeah. So the, the, the excellent question is, can you, so let's say I'm the baby, I'm, I'm, I'm developing an avoidant attachment, can I develop out of it? You can develop out of an adolescence, you can develop out of an adulthood, and Stuart was 92 mm-hmm. when he developed out of it. No, no, actually, I, I meant something different. Oh, you mean just automatically can it well, develop? let's say a baby actually has a secure attachment as a, as a young child. So if the baby has a secure attachment as a young child. then in early adolescence, in this early major remodeling stage, it is in a situation where um, there is no longer a response, you know, a nonverbal, picking up nonverbal cues. Oh, can you develop and it later? Can you develop yeah. it later? Oh, interesting. So, so let me repeat the question so everyone in, in, the, in, in the room and the internet world can hear that question. So can you, if you start out with a foundation the first 24 months of life, let's say, um, and then things change, can you develop insecurity from security? And the answer is yes. The answer is absolutely yes. Now, um, there's a lot to say about that in following the pathway, but the really important principle you're bringing up is you, you learn an adaptation early and you set the foundation, but then experiences that happen make you continue to adapt because we're always changing throughout our lifespan. Now, the good news about that is you can help people move towards security. The downside is you can actually develop any of these models at any time. However, if you had to put some money somewhere, you'd want to do it early on so kids can generally develop the resilience that can come from the security. And when we talk about the other forms, it gets a little little trickier too. So avoidant attachment model is basically, I think, a dominance in withdrawing from the left hemisphere, which means you are not connected to your, I'm not, let's say I'm the kid. I'm not going to be so connected with my body when I'm around my mom. I'm not going to be connected to my emotions. And I'm not going to be connected to a sense of an autobiographical self when I'm with her. And if that's my model with my father too, I can get a double dose of avoidance. So then when I grow up and you do this adult attachment interview with me, which I offer in the book, um, a, a version of it that's, the questions are modified so it's more useful for a book form, but it's inspired by the AI, you will see the questions reveal that if you've had that history, here's what people say. Um, how did your relationships early in life affect you? Well, they didn't. Um, how, what do you remember about your early childhood experiences? I don't. And I'm not talking about before seven years of age. A lot of people don't remember before seven. I mean, don't remember anything about their childhood. It's, it's absolutely incredible. 
The way to understand that is that the right hemisphere is not well developed. That's where you have autobiographical memory, connection to the body, connection to emotions. Now, if you don't have those things going into adolescence, just to talk about that, it's going to make adolescence have a certain characteristic to it. You're not going to be able to develop the kind of relationships with your friends that you might want that would feel satisfying. You're not going to be as in touch with your own emotions as you might want as emotions get more <laughs> intense. And all these ways that you're developing will be shaped by your attachment model that you had. So my feeling was, in writing the book, that adolescents should know what their model is because you can change it. And then I give a pathway in the book, these simple steps from you know, decades of doing this, of how you can actually start building a more secure, more integrated model. So that's the avoidant attachment model. Um, let's do the second one, and that's about 20% of the population. 20% of the population has an avoidant attachment in the United States. One out of five people. You know, and, I, and I really shouldn't be so hard on my academic colleagues, but you know, a lot of academia um, says that parents don't impact children. And, <laughs> and you've got to wonder what the percentage in academics is of those people who say <laughs> that parents don't impact, because that's exactly, that's exactly the statement in the adult attachment interview of the 20%, is they say, well, parents don't impact you. What's your next question? <laughs> so, you know, anyway, yeah, wow. So it's, it's interesting that the, the very research they say is not valid validates why they're saying it's not valid. <laughs> there must be a name for that. <laughs> I don't know what you call that. Uh, it's what? <laughs> Redundancy or something. Anyway, yeah, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, if we went, right. So the question is, when you go into the depth of the AAI, and I'm not doing that right here, but I could, in the AAI, in addition to saying I don't remember my childhood, when you say, well, how was your childhood, they'll say things like, my childhood was your average childhood. Yeah. Or, or they'll say, my childhood was fine, or everything was good. And then you say, well, okay, tell me about your relationship with your mom, and they'll say things like, well, my mom was a good mom. Well, give me an example of your mom being a good mom. Well, she did good things. So, yeah, so it's not like they're negative. They're just very general, super general, right? Um, it's fascinating, really fascinating. 20% of the population. Number two, are you keeping me on task? Good. Um, but I don't think I'm lost. No. <laughs> um, but am I lost? Maybe I'm lost. Um, so, number two. Number, actually, it's number three. We did secure attachment, avoid attachment, 20%. The second one is um, ambivalent attachment. Now, you will see in the literature sometimes, just so you're used to this, the word anxious attachment. Uh, the original use of the word anxious attachment was to be synonymous with insecure attachment. So any kind of insecure attachment, you could say insecure, anxious, avoidant. You could call it anxious, ambivalent. Some people then, in another branch of attachment, use anxious only for ambivalent. So I just dropped the word anxious altogether because it got too, it made us too anxious. So, um, so ambivalent, it's also called resistant. So what this is, is unlike the avoidantly attached kid that literally avoids the parent in a certain research paradigm called the infant strain situation, in this paradigm, when you put me in a situation where I'm with my mom or dad and they leave and then I'm with a stranger and then I'm alone, when my attachment figure returns, I'm very ambivalent meaning I go to them to make contact, I jump in their lap, and I cling to them. 
and I want to go play with the toys in the room, but I don't. But I want to, but I can't, because they may be there, they may not be here. So, so for the first year of life, this 15% of the population experiences basically um, inconsistent availability of being seen safe, not safe, but seen and soothed. So this feeling then gives me a sense that I can't rely on my parent to be there. No, 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 this is a different thing. This is where, it, so the question is, uh, will you get dropped off and picked up? Yeah, this is different from that. This is where sometimes my parent is there, sometimes not, and it's very inconsistent. Like it, manic depression? No, no, manic depression would be something extremely different, and we'll get to that in the next one. Okay. Um, or it would be where um, my parent is intruding their state onto me. So an example would be, let's say... Um, Let's say I'm hungry, and my parent is really worried whether he's going to be able to feed me well. Um, so I have inside of me a state of hunger, because it's time to eat, and I'm hungry. So I call out in hunger. Now my dad comes over to me, and he's filled with anxiety, and fear, and preoccupation, and un you know, uncertainty. So instead of just figuring out I'm hungry and feeding me, he's intruding his state of anxiety into my state of hunger. Now, since the brain is an associational organ that ties things together, what do you think is going to happen to me? I'm going to get anxious when I get hungry, which, of course, is going to make me want to eat more. Right? So I can, that's just one example, but you can see where I, he, that I'm getting intruded upon by his state. So rather than him being present, attuned, resonating, and developing trust, I basically, unlike the avoidant attachment where I get disconnected, here I'm getting confused. Like, who's me and who's my dad? Like, I was just hungry. Like, why am I anxious now? That's kind of weird. That's what ambivalent attachment is. And it's subtle, but it's pretty insidious. Because, and this relates to the question about the self, my sense of self doesn't have the clear boundaries that it would need. Now, sometimes they're too clear, like an avoidant attachment, like I'm never going to need anybody. In this case, it's the attachment system is amped up because I desperately need someone to find out who I am, but this particular person with whom I'm ambivalently attached doesn't give me a sense of security, but I cling even more, right? So that's ambivalent attachment. And as I grow up, I'm going to have what's called an adult preoccupied stance where I'm always worried about my relationships and whether they're going to be enough, not enough, and I can't rely on things, I'm not certain, I'm not certain about myself, I'm not certain about others, and like that. And that's 15% of the population. Now, we... Yeah, it's called Parenting from the Inside Out, uh, or this book uh, would be about that. You know, there are other books written about this that I wouldn't recommend. I've read them, and I don't, I don't really appreciate how they say things, and they confuse... There's a whole field of attachment research called adult romantic attachment. Well, I call it adult romantic attachment. They call it adult attachment. That is very different from the child development attachment viewpoint. They're very different, and they, they conflate the two in a way that is scientifically inaccurate. So that's why I've read them. They've asked me to blurb their books. I refuse because they miss, they, they miss the intellectual rigor of both groups by combining them. And you can't do that just to try to sell books. So, so that's why literally I would read parenting from the inside out. Yeah. Um, how does it affect someone's development when they don't have uh, parental 
when they're in adolescence. Like they don't have something to rebel against or they don't have like guidance or something like that. So the question is, what happens when you are an adolescent and there's a natural push with the essence to have this emotional spark and you're socially engaging with your peers and you're having novelty and the creative exploration so you're pushing against parents, but there's no parents around to push against. Well, that's a good question. What do you think happens? <laughs> you know, it's a really interesting question. In, in um, non, non-humans, when that happens, in elephants, for example, the elephants go wild. And they, they, don't have the, they don't have literally the structure that adults give, and so they literally go and, and do destructive things. So one of the thoughts about why we need, we need adolescents to have some kind of adult figures to push against is that you kind of define yourself in that healthy give-and-take process. If you're describing that an adult becomes absent, like they're literally physically not there, or they're absent because they're drunk, or they're absent because they have some, they've been hospitalized for something, you know, that can become a, a, a very powerful thing. And finding an adult in your life that can give you some kind of structure would be a really help, healthy thing to do. So you can, you know, here's the thing about it that's a really fantastic question. And it really illuminates a very important point that the mind is not only inside of you, it's between you and others. The mind is embodied and it's relational. And that's the same with the self. We have an embodied self, which is really important. We also have a relational self. So if there's no relationship there for which you to push against, then finding that kind of structure would be really helpful. Really helpful. I know for myself, I had a pretty... um, uh, unyielding father who was hard to push against because it was like a brick wall. And then when I was in medical school, I, I was a, kind of adopted by another father figure, and he was more flexible in how I could push against him. Um, and the funniest thing, uh, just it's a funny story, but uh, um, Tom was his name. Unfortunately, he, he passed away, but uh, he was a pediatrician. And I always thought he wanted me to be a pediatrician and actually marry his daughter. Um, so I had this whole like fantasy in my head, which actually turned out not to be a fantasy. But uh, anyway, so I, I decided I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I went into pediatrics at first because of my loyalty then, but then I decided to go into psychiatry and I was scared to talk to him, you know, because I thought I had let him down. So I just avoided him. And then the Olympics had come to town in LA in 1984 and, and Tom and his wife, Peg, they decided to come to L.A., um, actually with their daughter. So, uh, so they came, and I was so nervous. So he came, and I remember taking them out to this Mexican restaurant for dinner, and I was going to tell them, you know, I'm, I'm switching to psychiatry. And uh, so we were at dinner, and I tell him, and he goes, Daniel, he used to call me. He's from Virginia. He goes, Daniel. He goes, I've dropped pediatrics, and I'm a hypnotherapist now. <laughs> And I had made up this whole thing in my head about how he refused to let me become my own self. And, you know, so I don't know. So sometimes we make up our own walls. Um, What's that? Wouldn't that be an expression of the template that was... Yeah, that's right. And I had a template in my head, totally. In fact, that's when, sadly, when he was dying, I, I, I had written a book about my relationship with him when he was passing away. And I went to visit him in the hospital. And that's what our whole discussion was about, about... We had lots of laughs, even though he was dying. It was you know, a time just rejoicing for, for life. And, you know, that's what he talked about was, 
you know, how this template I had had didn't allow me to really see him. And he had a template of his own son that didn't allow him to see me. And all these things kind of all worked, so it didn't work out. But in the end, we kind of found a, a, a bonding together. So ambivalent attachment. Now, in disorganized attachment, the fourth kind, it's a very different sort of thing. The ambivalent attachment and the avoidant attachment are suboptimal, but they're not incompatible with attachment. So we, we do not call those any form of disorder. They're just you adapted to what you were given and, and, and you did the best you could, right? And, you, and, and those forms of attachment are so common. This other one is less common in the average general population, but in abuse situations, it's super common, like over 80%. Disorganized attachment is this situation. Let's say I'm the kid. You know, I need to be seen, I need to be safe, I need to be soothed so I can be secure. And now, whether I'm getting secure attachment or ambivalent attachment or avoidant attachment happening, it could be any of those three or all those three with different people, with this caregiver, this is what happens. My caregiver, either intentionally or not intentionally, scares me to death, terrifies me. And in my brain, there are two circuits. One is in the brainstem, and the other is in the limbic area. The limbic area circuit, remember the attachment circuit, says, if you are distressed, who am I supposed to go to? Caregiver. My caregiver. That's cool. That's fine. 200 million years old. But I have a 300 million year old circuit that says, if somebody is threatening me, I should run away. Right? 300 million years old. There's a fight in the brain of a kid who experiences terror induced by a parent, a caregiver, that basically activates two completely incompatible drives. One drive says, go toward my attachment figure. The other drive says, go away from my attachment figure. <laughs> so when the attachment figure is the source of terror, it fragments the mind. It collapses any organized strategy of attachment. So secure attachment is an organized approach to being seen, safe, and soothed. So you're secure. Avoidant is an organized approach to not getting your needs met. So you say, I don't need anybody. I'll do it on my own. That makes sense that you did that. It's an organized strategy. Ambivalence is, hey, I need closeness, but I'm not sure you're going to be here. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't, maybe you aren't, maybe you aren't. So I'm going to cling to you. That makes sense, too. In this situation, it's very different. Now, I'm being given a set of experiences that is incompatible with me finding an organized strategy. There's literally nothing I can do. I've got two circuits activated that are telling me to physically do something with my body, go toward and go away at the same moment, so I collapse. I literally fragment, and the word we use for fragmentation is dissociation. I disso disassociate the usually connected aspects of my mental functioning. Does that make sense? So, this, so when we say disorganized attachment, this is what we mean. It's about 5 to 15% of the regular population and high-risk groups of abuse and neglect. It's 80-plus percent found, disorganized attachment. Now, disorganized attachment is the only form of uh, attachment model that is associated with a serious problem, which is called dissociation. Dissociation is a psychiatric condition that involves a fragmentation of the mind 
so that under stress, you can feel unreal, you feel disconnected from your body, you can uh, have uh, all sorts of things enter your awareness that some people would call hallucinations, but they're images that are, feel absolutely real. But this is not a form of psychosis. This is a dissociative process that now we know comes from, at least in the studies that we know this is to be true, comes from experiences with parents. And when this was first discovered, oh my God, did the National Alliance of the Mentally Ill get mad at the attachment researchers saying, you're accusing all psychiatric disorders to be due to what parents do. And that's not at all what this attachment research is showing. Attachment research does not say attachment leads to schizophrenia or manic depressive illness or attention deficit or depression or anything. It's only saying attachment disorganization is associated with dissociation. That's all it says. But people generalize, and, and I want to be really clear, that we're not going back and saying, for example, autism. Autism is not caused by anything parents do. Absolutely not. Now, if you have a child with autism, does it create difficulty in the relationship? Of course it does. But it doesn't mean the relationship caused the difficulties. You see what I mean? So we have to be super, super careful because in my field, child psychiatry, we unfortunately, 50, 60 years ago, accused parents of causing all sorts of conditions, manic depressive illness, schizophrenia with double binds, autism with refrigerator mothers. All that was absolutely wrong, wrong, wrong. It was accusing people of things they never did. It was making them feel terrible. It was not helping anybody. So we have to be really careful of that. So I'm telling you about this attachment stuff with that frame that we need to understand that certain disorders are not at all caused by what parents do. But if we just ignore that and don't include attachment like in this book, you know, I think we'll be putting our head in the sand. Now, the good news is dissociation is completely treatable. Suboptimal attachment can be converted to secure attachment. So not only are these caused by experience, but actually experience can repair them. So that's the great news. It's really great news. So my feeling and why I put in the book is that you can set up a pathway for someone with disorganized attachment. Let's say you're still living with a parent who's terrifying you. My feeling is if you know that this is the mechanism, then at least you can use your, the strength of your mind to develop other relationships. You can use the strength of your mind to understand when you're dissociating. And I have all this in the book for the adolescent or the adult reading this to recognize their own symptoms of dissociation and realize there's something they can do about it. You know? Because think about it. Think about the cross-generational passage. The person in the back was, you were asking about what happens in cultures. You know, if you pass along a tendency to dissociate in a family, here are the things that can lead to disorganized attachment. Dissociation in a parent. So look what I just said. Dissociation in a parent leads to dissociation in a kid who then grows up and has dissociation who then creates dissociation in the kid. It's not genetic. It's experiential. But this is a huge issue. Unresolved trauma is associated with dissociation. What else can do it? If you have another condition, like drug addiction, if a baby is experiencing an intoxicated parent, they're terrifying. The parent may not be doing that on purpose, but the kid is still terrified. That still gets you disorganized attachment. Severe neglect leads to dissociation. It's terrifying to be massively neglected, and that's the work of Carlin Lyons Ruth. So there's all sorts of things we need to understand that even if parents aren't at those severe forms, 
There's things that we can be doing as parents that are leading to disorganization in our children, and we need to recognize that. And I'm not going to freak you out, but I want you just to know this so the parents in the room can be aware of this. If you have some unresolved issue in yourself, unresolved trauma, that freaks you out, like in the book I wrote, The Mindful Therapist, I talked about one of my unresolved traumas, which was, it's a long story, so I don't need to repeat it here, but, but it basically it, it created a terror in me that I'm sure was terrifying for my kids to see. That can induce in them, if in this case it was related to dogs, not to kids, but if it had been related to kids, it could induce, um, it can induce terror in them, not that you were frightening them because you're terrifying them, but you're looking terrified can be terrifying to your kid because of something called mirror neurons. They soak in your terror. So you may just have an unresolved issue yourself and you're not abusing your kid, you're not neglecting them, you're not you know, having a severe mental illness, you're not intoxicated, but you have an unresolved issue that has been associated with disorganized attachment in a kid. So it's just an act, any act, intentional or not, that induces terror in a child can induce disorganized attachment. That's not the end of the world, it just means your kid will have a propensity to dissociate and they need to get some help with that. Because it's a fundamental block to uh, healthy functioning if you tend to dissociate. And yet it's very common. Yeah? So I have a big question. Do you have the, so yeah, let's bring the talking stick to you. And then let me ask you, is this amount of detail okay you're hearing? So, and then we'll get the talking stick to you. And, and does this address your question about the attachment thing? Yeah. So you have a big smile on your face. That's good. And I just want to emphasize, I want to emphasize the upside of all this stuff. Knowing about this can help liberate people from a lifetime of imprisonment by mental models of attachment that are completely changeable. They're completely changeable. And that's another reason, the question about the book. A lot of the books that are out there present attachment as that's what you've got and, and if, you meet, if you meet someone who's got that attachment forget it, go find someone else because it's unchangeable, it's genetic that's what some of these things say it's not true, these are changeable states and so, you know I don't know, I mean so I'm extremely optimistic that if we, rather than make this a clinical issue if, this, if we make this a cultural issue that we're all kind of responsible for each other and our own empowerment this is the great news. So if someone says, hey, I've got this attachment, you go, that's fine, you're going you're gonna to be okay. You know, yeah, of course, you're feeling a little ambivalent, that's fine, you know, work it through, there's things you could do. So we, we like, what is it called, um, demystify this, and certainly depathologize it. You know, we have this issue, you're never supposed to talk about these things, or how we were dependent on our parents at one point, you know. I mean, so, so that's the good news about this, is the cultural conversation that I want to ask you to think about because we have an hour and a half left to go with each other or, or whatever, um, we really should think about you know, how you can be empowered at the end of today to actually, in small or big ways, in whatever way you can do it, think about how you take these ideas and reclaim essence in your life so that it isn't uh, something that you've lost if you're an adult, that if you're an adolescent, to actually find a way to embrace it and actually cultivate it which is a totally different view than what we've gotten, right? And so rather than making it a period of life where you're just trying to get through it, it's actually something you go, wow, this, uh, this is great. This is where I'm at. And, you know, there's some beautiful, beautiful ways we can do that, I think, 
when we collaborate. Yes. And that's really where my question and my concern is. It feels to me that, you know, that you're talking about an incredible unused and misused resource that we need to move on to a place of sustaining life. And that one of those misses is not the attachment what you know or this is my question is that it's that adolescence seems to be the place where in that remodeling it's attachment to the culture mm -hmm. or to what's the values of the culture yeah. that needs to guide that yeah, and beautiful. so that even with healthy families that step is mm -hmm. where we see all these different attachment things getting worked out again so for example you know if we're in a culture that um, promotes certain values, but then through its market economy actually exploits those same values, like drugs are bad, right? And then keeps giving images about drugs are good or medication's good. So then the adolescent goes and use them and then gets arrested and gets in the criminal justice system. Is that a disorganized attachment situation yeah, yeah. where what they're being given is breaking apart something that might have been whole at an earlier stage and at this stage it's being fragmented. Yeah, yeah. And so that, you know, so that the, um, the big questions is how do we deal with this as a culture to see what we're exploiting and misusing yeah. to help us get through to the new that we have to find. That seems to me the question that you're pointing to. Yeah, absolutely. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I'm so glad I, I don't have to repeat it because you had the talking stick because I could never say it as eloquently as you did. Um, yeah, so uh, let, let, let's take a really um, broad view of that really powerful and penetrating question. Um, And I'm going to speak, I hope not too abstractly, but I want to speak in, in the broad way first and then go to the specifics. So the broad way is if you think about, and I want to forgive, uh, I, I want you to forgive me if I sound too nerdy, but you know, when you think about the relationship between culture and identity, uh, which is kind of what you're talking about, uh, the way for me to make sense of those leaps from my inner personal identity to the larger society, even global culture, um, is through energy patterns, energy and information patterns. And let's just take one simple one. Uh, the energy pattern that is rallying around the term self. Right? Mm -hmm. So people growing up in a modern culture, um, what happens? You're raised in a family, okay, you have attachment, and they say, you know, you're Billy, and I'm your mom, or I'm your dad, and then Billy grows up, Okay, and he grows up and then he's in, you know, preschool maybe and he's learning to share his toys and co co collaborate. And then he goes to kindergarten, he's still sharing. And then by the time he's in, you know, second grade, third grade, he starts getting ready to compete on the spelling bee. And then he's in fifth grade, he starts worrying about where he's going to go for sixth grade. And then in seventh grade, he's starting to worry about where he's going to go for college and all this stuff. And it's all about can his self on the athletic field or in the spelling bee or in the SAT, can he beat out the other separate selves. So by the time this, by the, before you hit adolescence, there is this cultural message reinforced by the family that the self is separate. That the self is separate. And 
I think what happens when that message gets passed into the brain, just to, to stick with the brain for a moment, is the brain begins to believe, just like the kid with an avoidant attachment believes, in the deepest sense of belief, the brain begins to encode the messages it receives. And it's the water the fish swims in. It is just, that's the way it is. The self is separate. So just to pause here for a moment. Why should we believe that that word self, S-E-L-F, self, that the self is limited by the boundary of the skin? Why should we believe that? Of course, it's what we're told all the time. Compete, compete, compete. Make sure this body gets more stuff, right? So if I have more stuff around this body, then what? Then, uh, then when this body dies, I'll, I'll have won the game or something? No, I'm serious about this. You know, we were in, uh, we were in Canada recently. Um, my wife and uh, my daughter here, here and... Um, we were up in Canada, and we decided to go to this graveyard, you know, just to, to read the tombstones. And I didn't see any tombstone say, you know, Sarah Beth, she died with a lot of stuff. <laughs> no. Every tombstone was about relationships. Relationships, relationships, relationships. And everything, and every study of happiness, of health, of longevity, of you know, medical well-being or mental well-being in terms of health, they all show that relationships, supportive relationships are the most important thing in life. But nothing really much happens in school to support that when you get out in this competitive world. And yet if you look at Sarah Hurdy's work on, in Mothers and Others, as I mentioned, there's this thing called alloparenting, where what makes our species unique is that we collaborate with caregiving. In traditional cultures... It sort of died out in modern, modern U.S. society. But in traditional cultures, it's really clear in our evolution, it was never just the mother that took care of the baby, ever, mm-hmm. ever. It was a community that took care of that baby, of a few selective other attachment figures, yes, but we had a collaborative community in which we grew, mm-hmm. right? And you had connections to people, and the self was distributed. The self was distributed. It was never ever encased by the skin. And when you see all the stress that people feel, all the disillusionment people feel, the emptiness people feel, the disconnection people feel, in this strange age of internet connectedness, people are feeling more isolated than ever. Because I think they're realizing that this way is not working. And I think because what's embedding us is a cultural and family message that the self is separate. Now, Albert Einstein had a phrase where he said, that the view that we're separate from each other is an optical delusion, not even an illusion, a delusion. And what I want to say to you is that I think the human brain is capable of soaking in messages and believing its own hype. And it's really at risk of this separateness. It's really at risk of this separateness. And the downside of this is we believe it, we go through an entire life disconnected, people are feeling unhappy, even in an age of more material well-being than ever before, people are getting less happy. I don't know if you know that. Mm-hmm. Less happy. And it's like my, my brother-in-law once called and he said, um, I'm really worried about my son. I said, uh, what's going on? You know, when a relative calls you and you're a child, Scott, what's going on? 
Well, you know, we just sent him to South America where he lived in a village. I said, okay. Is he okay? Yeah, well, he just got back. I said, well, how's he doing? He goes, well, I don't know. I mean, he came back, and he's giving away all his things, which, of course, for a child psychiatrist, that's serious. That could be his suicidal. So I said, wow. I mean, I'm not sure what that means, but let me talk to him. So he gets on the phone, too. And I said, well, what's going on? How was your time down there? He goes, Dan, it was amazing. I go, what was it like? And his dad's listening. He goes, I have never seen people so happy, and they had absolutely nothing. They had no stuff. They just had each other, and they were beaming with happiness. He goes, here, he lives in a big city, he goes, here, we have tons of stuff, and people are miserable. It's all crap, you know? So I'm giving away my stuff in hopes I can get some of that uh, here. So I said to my brother, I said, I don't think you have anything to worry about. And he goes, well, how is he going to ever earn a living? <laughs> I said, I see. You want him to be really interested in making a lot of money. He goes, of course. I said, all right, well, that, that's it. I mean, it's, it's this, you know, you know, this thing. So anyway, we're going to talk about how to integrate that into our whole approach in just a moment. There's a question there. So can we get the talking stick there and a question there? So who's got the talking stick? Way in the back. And then when we're getting in, what I want you to think about then is, and, and I conclude the brainstorm book with this is, how do you actually embrace these concepts with the larger reality that we do live in life? You do have to make a living. My nephew is going to have to make some money to pay his mortgage or whatever he's going to have to do, or maybe not, I don't know. But, um, you know, we have to balance out how you actually make these conceptual ideas real. But uh, this cultural question is huge because it isn't, I mean, you can, it can be like what Gandhi said. You can be the change you want to see in the world, and that's a really important starting place. Once we begin there, you can carry that out with relationships with other people, with larger things if you're a professional, or in schools, in your communities. There's lots of ways of changing this. And this it can be a sea change where the cultural messages, that's what I mean by sea, the cultural messages that get transmitted can happen in simple ways when you go to the grocery store and you treat the, the person at the cash register with deep respect, when you develop, you know, empathic joy. You know, empathic joy is this notion that you can feel joy for another person's joy. Can you imagine what the world would be like if we actually tried to catalyze the emotion of empathic joy where everyone was really trying to push for the success of everyone else? Wouldn't that be cool? What a world we live in, right? Everybody would be trying to boost each other up and trying to really get a hit off of everyone's excitement about being alive. That would be amazing. And that's possible. I don't think that's just theoretical. I think that's possible. If you see it, I think you can make it happen. Yeah. Thank you so much for your work, your books, and your words. Um, I've been clinical director at Windhorse in uh, Boulder and also in San Luis, where we build teams uh, around people who have had a lot of a disassociation and then reintegrate through relationship and regularity. And I've seen recovery from people who've had every diagnosis in the book, full recovery, um, having jobs, relationships, living on their own. So I feel very fortunate that I've had that opportunity to do the Windhorse work, um, both in, in Colorado and California. I'm also currently a director of an emergency crisis service serving folks that are um, development disabled, intellectually disabled, and autistic, and often co-occurring um, mental health psychosis. And what I notice in the work is, especially when there's a lot of cognitive impairment or even neurological challenge, um, I just have to show up. 
and I have to be very embodied, and it's really nonverbal. I'm not saying a lot. I'm not doing a lot. It's just my presence, everything you speak of. And even in a critical moment in time, extreme crisis, just the presence to show up, shoulders back, face calm, just that moment in time is very stabilizing without even trying to process or talk about it because people have commonly lost com cognitive function then. But my question is, um, I was also chair of department at Naropa, contemplative psych, trying to teach these skills to people. And what I found commonly with therapists in training was that it was their own fear of showing up in such a full, you know, embodied way and having the courage to just meet that moment that was the hardest thing to teach. Yeah. And to yeah. not teach technicians, you know, not like a cable person trying to put the cable on the wall. It's how do you show people to be that courageous and willing to be that authentic and show up in a lot of uncertainty and not knowing, but yeah. knowing that that makes a difference? Well, let me, let me respond to that. Um, you know, um, that's a beautiful question. Thank you for your great, great work. Um, you know, the... Um, The, there's a practice called the Wheel of Awareness practice, which in other settings here I've done, and uh, you, you know we would take the time to do it. It does take some time, but I'd, rather than doing it, I'd rather have a discussion, and you can do it on my website, unless you, unless you guys really want to do a practice, but it's, it's, it's a half an hour. So I'd rather continue with the discussion, if that's okay with you. Yeah. All right. So, so if you go to my website, which is D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L, drdansiegel.com, go to Resources, and then you can do the, the if, if you're used to doing reflective practice, you can go straight to the wheel of awareness practice. For those people who have never done reflective practice, do the breath practice for a little while, like a week, and then do the, breath, the wheel of awareness practice. But I want to describe it to you because it really addresses exactly your question. And this is going to be like a seven-minute response to your beautiful question. Um, but it's going to have within it, for those of you who want to know a bit of the scientific... Um, wrestling with these issues of self, it has, a, uh, it has a bit of this in it that I think would be useful at least as a foundation. So if, if you have safety belts, put them on your chair because this is going to be a little bit of a wild ride. So, so I'm going to lay out a couple of the foundations. Number one, um, as far as I can tell, in every process of change, whether it's in schools, and I'd love the teachers to give me some feedback on this, or in families with our view experiences, parents, or as therapists, every process of change involves consciousness, which is just really interesting. Doesn't mean everything's intentional, but it, someone's got to be aware and awake for it to happen. All right, so that's one thing. The next thing we said is that integration is the basis of health, and integration is defined as the linkage of differentiated parts, and so I said to myself when I was with my patients uh, a long time ago, what if you integrated consciousness? What would that look like? So remember, integration is the, the differentiation of elements of a system and then the linkage. So there's a table in my office that looks like a wheel, and in it is a central hub and an outer rim. And it seemed to me, and I would walk around the table with my patients, that the central hub, which is clear, it's glass in, in my office, if you picture this hub of a wheel, this is where you have the element of consciousness called knowing. Because consciousness, if you had to divide it up, it would have two differentiable elements, the knowing and the known. So to integrate consciousness, 
you need to systematically separate the knowing from the known and then link them through a process called attention, which if you can imagine a spoke going from the hub to the rim, the hub would be the knowing, the rim would be the known. Now, what's a known? You hearing my voice, that's sound. You seeing me move my hands, that's sight. So the first quarter of this rim would be things you pick up with the first five senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, uh, smelling, touching. So it brings in the outside world. Then if you move around the rim to the next segment of the rim, you've got the interior of the body, which in science we call the sixth sense. This is the, mus the feeling of the muscles, the sensation of the bones, the sensation of the intestines, the genitals, the, the lungs, the heart. The interior of the body is called interoception when you're aware of it. So interoception is this next segment of the rim. If you go around to the third segment of the rim, what you have here are mental activities like emotions or thoughts or intentions, memories, images, hopes, dreams, longings, attitudes, everything you know about mental life is in this third segment of the rim. And then in the fourth segment of the rim, I think there's even another set of knowns, and these would include our sense of connection to other people and even the planet. So if we call the first five senses that first aspect of the rim, then the sixth sense is the body, let's call your awareness, the knowing of what's going on in mental life, the seventh sense, and then we even have this eighth sense of relationships, a relational sense. So what happened was I had people do this wheel of awareness practice where they would systematically move attention from sight to hearing to smelling to taste to touch and then move to the next segment to muscles and bones throughout the body and the, the genitals, the intestines, the lungs, the heart. Then they move to being open to whatever was going on in their mental life, feelings, thoughts, memories, stuff like that. And then they move to their sense of connection to things outside of them, other people, and lar the larger planet. And when you do the practice, you'll systematically do this. Then what I have people do is, and we introduce this at different times depending on which practice you do, but at some point when you're ready, it's a more advanced step, you actually bend the spoke around that you're sending from the knowing of the uh, hub. Instead of going to the rim, you bend it around so you aim attention straight into the hub of the knowing of awareness. And we're not doing it here, so in the abstract you may go, what is he talking about? But what's interesting is I've done this now with, with thousands and thousands of people all around the planet, and what's been fascinating about it is no matter what culture they're from, they describe the experience in exactly the same way. No matter what their professional background, no matter what their history is of meditating or not meditating, they describe it in the same way. Now, a part of me doesn't even want to say how they describe it, and just say, go do it, and let's talk about it next time I see you. Uh, but I'll just say this in terms of your question. There is a scientific way of taking the first-person descriptions of these thousands of inputs we have now as data points about the cross-cultural expression of what it's like to have awareness of awareness and integrating consciousness to say that you can take professionals to answer your question about how do we get people comfortable with presence. And, and this is where I want your seatbelts on. You can propose, as I do in the pocket guide and, and the, um, the mindful therapist, you can see there's a scientific explanation 
for the nature of consciousness that involves a view whereby there's a distribution. When you say that this is all about energy flow, because all these are forms of energy, and you look deeply at how a physicist talks about energy, and I, I was able to do this when I, I was asked to teach for a week with 150 physicists, and all we talked about was quantum mechanics and systems theory and mathematics, and I drilled them like crazy about energy. And what many of the physicists said is this, that physics sees energy as the capacity to do something. And since we've said that the mind is this self-organizing process that's regulating energy and information flow, then you say, well, what really is, is energy? If information are forms of energy with symbolic value, what is energy? These physicists tell us that energy is the capacity to do stuff. You say, fine, capacity to do stuff. It sounds pretty vague, but whatever. How do you measure this capacity? And this is what they said that was amazing. They said you measure the capacity of energy on a spectrum that's like a wave that goes between certainty and uncertainty. And that sometimes you're in certainty, so like with a photon of light, for example, you know exactly where that photon is. It's considered a particle, and sometimes it's massively uncertain. You don't know where it is on this wave function, for those of you who remember physics. Um, the issue there is that energy moves between uncertainty and certainty. This is what physicists tell us. Now watch this. Listen to these descriptions. When people bend the spoke around and aim the spoke of attention into the hub itself, this is what they have described. There was a tremendous vastness it was unbelievably peaceful. I saw God. It was as wide as the sky, deep as the ocean. It was complete infinite. It was a sense of profound hope. It was love. Over and over and over again, things like that. Now, how can we understand that scientifically? What I'm going to suggest to you is that consciousness emerges when the energy wave rests within its point of uncertainty. Those are complete, the correlation of uncertainty is infinite possibility. And I call this a plane of possibility. That you can drop into this plane of possibility and rest in the ease of uncertainty. And that what arises from this plane of possibility are various movements away from uncertainty that get closer and closer to certainty. So as you rise above the plane of possibility, you go toward an intention, a mood as you're rising up. As you go further up, you get to a state of mind. As you go further up toward 100% certainty, you go to thinking, remembering, emoting. And then when you get all the way up to certainty, you get to a thought a memory, and emotion. And that this model presents a continuity between mental experience, like a thought, an emotion, or a memory, and consciousness itself. Now, in this model, what you have then is a practice, the wheel of awareness practice, which is a metaphor. You have a scientific proposal, which is a mechanism. 
And then you can see, to address your question, the way I train my folks, whether they're my patients, myself, or my friends, or my, uh, my students, um, to come at ease with uncertainty, which is where presence emerges from. Presence emerges from the plane of possibility. And this capacity is trainable. You can teach yourself to do this. This is why I give this for the adolescents or the adults reading the book. The Wheel of Awareness is in the Brainstorm book. Because what you do when you do this, and they ne you never need to think about all this quantum stuff about certainty, uncertainty. I don't even talk about that because I tried to, and then I said, oh, that's just too much. Um, but it's in all the other writings. But the issue is the metaphor is there. So we are teaching the Wheel of Awareness to five-year-olds in kindergarten who are getting it. And we never talk about certainty and uncertainty. We say, go to your hub. And they say, I've never been so safe before in my life. Or the, we, I got one email recently where the, the kindergartner kid goes to his teacher and says, I am lost on my rim. I need a timeout so I can get back to my hub. <laughs> no kidding. And, and we teach the teachers how to do this in the whole brain child. We teach you how to word it, how to word the wheel of awareness so the kids can do it. You know, so, so the, the thing is about, the reason I took the time to put your seatbelts on and all that stuff is what's really exciting about this moment is if you accept that this might be true, and I'm completely open that it's totally not true, but it fits all the data, and that's just interesting. Uh, maybe it's wrong, I don't know. But it fits the data, it predicts future findings, and here's, here's the thing that's neat about it. It's useful. So even if the mechanism isn't exactly right, the actual practice works. The practice works. We've had now a third of a million people download this practice from our website. We give it away for free, which our financial people say was really dumb. <laughs> we should have given it away for a dollar, you know, but we didn't. Anyway, oh well, live and learn. So, um, so, so we give it away because we felt that, you know, people should have access to this, you know? People should have access to this. So, so you take it on. So think about it this way. If that, in fact, is where presence comes, then I, I say to you, look, let's do this. Let's start building a culture where people, I'm going to say it in literally metaphoric terms, strengthen the hub of their mind. Forget the plane of possibility and the quantum stuff if you don't like that stuff. I think it's cool and I think it's actually the mechanism. But let's just not even go there practice the hub so that they, they literally, on a daily basis, can strengthen the hub of their mind. They can feel when they're in different places on the rim. They get the capacity to move to the hub. And when you move to the hub, basically, it's like the question that was raised earlier, the question that you raised about uh, attachment. What you can do when you develop this wheel of awareness practice is you drop beneath those models of attachment are on your rim. You see? They're on your rim, and they're sucking you into certain patterns of being. You give someone the wheel of awareness practice, they drop down to their hub. They go, oh, yeah, there I go. My avoidant model is being activated. Isn't that fascinating? You know, rather than being the avoidant model, they're observing the avoidant model. And then they have a choice. How do you get it? I don't remember. No, you get it from, uh, you just go to the website, dr. Dan, D-A-N. Siegel, S-I-E-G-L dot com. Go to resources, and then you'll just and you can download it on your, your object. So this is this is this is to put that part together. And the really really cool thing about it is, 
you can translate, and I don't mean to simplify everything, but you can translate the various mindfulness practices in, let's say, yoga or in vipassana through this lens. Mm -hmm. Because the wheel of awareness practice was designed to be an integration of uh, conscious practice before I even knew there was a field called mindful awareness. Mm -hmm. It just comes from integrating consciousness. But, you know, according to Jack, who, who we do it together, and John Kabat-Zinn and others who've done the practice, they feel it meets criteria for mindfulness practice, but it was never designed to be that. It was designed to integrate consciousness. Now, I don't think that's a mistake. I think mindfulness in all of its various variations, sitting meditation, walking meditation, yoga, all the tai chi, qigong, all the different ways you do mindfulness, I think are profoundly integrative in that they allow you access to this hub of the mind where you're able to literally strengthen your capacity to move energy curves along different patterns. And presence allows you to rest in the incredible exhilaration of uncertainty. It allows you to thrive with uncertainty. I, I just first want to thank you for that because uh, the thing I've encountered repeatedly is people are just really uh, escalated around uncertainty. People get uncertain and get yeah. anxious and get elevated and aggressive. All kinds of things happen. But anything I've ever done is by resting in uncertainty and realizing exactly. you're not going to die and your heart is open and you're okay is where actually people either stabilize or relax. But, it, but I appreciate what you're saying is you found a way to get and help people get there without having to use maybe paradigms or rubrics or models that are evocative. It's some way that you found that they can rest in uncertainty without flipping out about it. That's right. That's right. And, and thank you. And I know there's a question here, so if we can get the stick over there. While the stick is coming over, let me just build on what you just said. You know, um, this issue of uncertainty is huge. It's in every part of our lives. And if you map that onto our wheel of awareness practice and map that onto this plane of possibility mechanism, then what it says is that the fear of uncertainty in this ever-changing world makes people cling to rigid certainties on the rim, you know, which in the, plat the plane of possibility view are called peaks and plateaus. You're stuck on these peaks. And, and then you begin to believe the rim is the truth. And you just recursively reinforce, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. So people run around trying to communicate each other from their rims, if you will, or from the peaks. And you can't get there. You've got to drop down to your hub to be present so you can receive the inner essence of someone else, right? And this is, this is where the whole thing kind of comes together. So thank you, thank you for your question. Does that make sense? You know, because it's not, it's, not like it's, uh, it's not like it's easy to describe. It takes a little time. Uh, but actually, if you read the Pocket Guide to Interpersonal Neurobiology, that's where I just let loose, that and the Mindful Therapist. Because in the other books, you know, I can't put this in the developing mind because it's a textbook for graduate schools and people would look at me and go, where's your evidence for that? So these two books, The Mindful Therapist and The Pocket Guide, is where I just go to town on doing this, especially The Mindful Therapist walks you through it. Yes, please. Thanks for your patience. Thank you, Dan, for leaving me with far more questions than answers. Okay. I hope that feels okay. To Wonderful. Oh, I'm good. excited. My heart's fluttering, and I'm all excited. Fantastic. Um, I got really enthused when you were talking about kind of bringing essence, that model of yours, into the uh, teaching program. And I'm currently um, developing a adventure therapy program, working with teens, and my big interest is in eco-psychology and eco-therapy. Mm. And when you're talking about integrating consciousness, 
a lot of the modalities that we use are self-awareness, developing interception, and thus developing more of a, um, an integrated self of, sense of one's personal experience. But then you started questioning self, which I'm always doing, and I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to maybe a question we can't answer because the meme that we're under is not quite ready and maybe we need to turn to the teens for this. Mm -hmm. But um, when I asked Dan Goleman just a short while ago in the same room this question, he spoke about um, lifespan analysis and teaching lifespan analysis. And I'm thinking um, along the lines of how do I expand the awareness outside of the skin, as you said, so that we recognize our interdependence with all of the beings that we cohabitate here with. Yes. And how do I do that in this um, model of outdoor adventure? Um, I'm using a lot of um, rites of passage model to help instill this ability to be in the liminal and to be in the state of um, comfort with the unknown. And yet I'm trying to help them also know what's all around them as an intimate other. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Do you mind sharing your name? So, because a lot of people nodding, they may want to go on a trip with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Embarrassed here, my actual name is Jonathan Kabat, but I'm not related to John Kabat-Zinn. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Um, so you actually, we're all related, so that's... Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, Okay, so that's a, a beautiful question. Let me, let me address it with a couple of things. Um, uh, just on the very practical level, I know Decker Keltner at um, uh, the Greater Goods Center at, at Cal, at Berkeley, um, is you know, working with folks who are very interested in, in the idea of um, outdoor experience and the experience of awe and how that can be therapeutic. So I just want to make sure if you want to get connected to Decker that I, I mentioned that. So now to talk about the conceptual part of it, um, You know, I think that the experience of energy and information flowing inside of us that gets reinforced um, in our modern culture to think of the self as in the body um, is so pervasive that to question it, um, you can be either thought to be out of your mind or there's something wrong with you or whatever like that or you're too far out, or whatever. Um, but in contrast to that, I think we have to really question why that word self, that sense of um, uh, identity, and that sense of being a source of agency, which is how some people define the self, um, has to be only located in the body. So using integration as a paradigm to address your really powerful questions, uh, I would just um, ask us to always um, be embracing the integration notion. So, in the integration notion, you always want to allow things to be differentiated and linked. So even the, what I just said about 10 seconds ago about self, a truly integrated way of approaching that would be to say, yes, there is a self that's in your body. Yes, there is a self that has a lifespan that needs to be integrated. Um, you can look at the adult attachment interview questions and do that. Yes, there is a self that should savor the experience of, you know, swimming in the ocean, of being out in the sunshine, that's completely fine. 
And just because you have a differentiated embodied self doesn't mean you can't also equally have uh, a relational self that has many dimensions relating to other people, um, relating to the planet. Uh, you know, and so uh, I always use this little phrase, um, 3G2P, you know, with gratitude and generosity and giving back, you connect to people and the planet. You know, just to remind us that that's one deep, deep source of selfhood. So just like in all of my academic writings about the mind, I try to be really clear as much as I can that the mind has no reason to be, first of all, coming from the head. It, it comes from the whole body. But it doesn't need to come from just the body. It also comes from our relationships with each other and the planet. So in that same way, if you think of just self and mind as kind of co-creating each other, it's the same thing that, yes, 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 we have an embodied self, and that's great. So when someone's learning, let's say, to do a ropes course, they need to know how to hold on and not fall down and break their bones. I mean, that embodied self is real. They can't say, I'm living in uncertainty and drop, and they, you know, <laughs> that's not going to work. <laughs> They've got to embrace that. But at the same time, and this is really about the, the wheel practice, you know, we have to be very careful about how the concepts we have imprison us or liberate us. So this may sound wacko because it's another acronym, but there's an acronym that I don't use very much lately that, that I, I, I think it just never found much scientific validation in half of it, so I just dropped it. But the more I think about it, I want to put it in right now. It's the acronym SOCK. S-O-C-K, that our experience in life has these four dimensions to it that have a differentiable quality. S is sensation, O is observation, C is conceptualization, and K is knowing, a kind of non-conceptual knowing, the K. And I bring up these four because um, when I first did any kind of meditation, it was in this week-long silent retreat. I actually wrote about this in The Mindful Brain. And, you know, um, I had done this panel on, with John Kabat-Zinn, your relative, you know, and, we, uh, and I didn't know anything about meditation, but I said, you know, look, there are these nine prefrontal functions that I mentioned, and it's really weird, but in attachment research, basically all nine are proven outcomes of attachment research, and I said, it seems like your research with Richie Davidson shows all nine are outcomes of mindfulness, and I said, yet they come from integrative function of the brain, and he said yes, and then other people said, you know, they were from spiritual traditions too. I was teaching in Alaska, and the Inuit tribe uh, leader came to me and said, those nine prefrontal functions are what we've been teaching for 5,000 years in the Inuit oral tradition. And then people in the Lakota tradition, the Hindu tradition, the Buddhist tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Christian tradition, all have these nine prefrontal functions. I don't talk about prefrontal, but nine functions on how to live a wise and kind life. So I said to John, I said, it's kind of weird, but um, I don't know anything about mindfulness, but I do know a little something about attachment. He goes, well, you need to learn to meditate. Anyway, so I went to this week-long silent retreat, and actually John was there, um, but uh, we couldn't talk to each other. So we were just, uh, <laughs> you know, because it's silent. And so this was at, at, um, at Barry in the Insight Meditation Society, where Jack also founded that with Sharon Salzberg and uh, Joseph Goldstein. So we were there. And in my experience, there were four differentiable streams of awareness. I could do the walking meditation and sense 
my feet, my body. That's the S. I could also observe myself sensing my body. But it was observing. It wasn't just sensing. I could even sense myself observing, but don't get into that. I think it's too weird. But, um, but I could. Then I, then I had a concept. Then I had a conceptual stream that it was a good idea to be listening to my teachers and not fighting back and having my inner adolescent push back on them totally because I should really listen to them. Um, so that was concept. And then I had this profound sense of knowing that everybody doing this walking meditation was doing it to try to heal the earth. It wasn't a concept. It was just a feeling, really. And, and so, of course, I couldn't say this to anybody, but I started laughing out loud because um, I thought, oh, yeah, that's sock, you know, I said. <laughs> and then when I realized you could, you observe to decouple automaticity, that was Yoda, Y-O-D-A, then I thought of Yoda's socks, and then I started laughing my head off, and I, I thought they were crazy. I thought I was really losing my mind. And then I didn't know if in a silent retreat you weren't allowed to talk to yourself, so then I got really worried. So, and then I just started giggling everywhere I went. It was really funny. Anyway, but the sock thing can help us with exactly what you're saying. So when you take someone into an eco-transformational experience, you want to give them the integrated experience, which means differentiating linking, where they can honor the sensation. Now we know from Norman Farb's study in Toronto that there is a separate circuit in the brain that allows you to sense from that which is lateralized from that which allows you to observe, which is centralized. No one's looked for the conceptual circuit or the knowing circuit, so that's why I don't talk about it that much. I try to just use what's scientifically supported. But we do have at least the SO is, is differentiated. Now, I believe very deeply mindfulness is not just sensation. So unlike what some mindfulness researchers are saying now, they're saying that mindfulness is just flow. It's where you get the flow of the sensation. I think that's completely wrong. And Jack uh, agrees that it's wrong. That, in fact, all the, the wisdom traditions teach you've got to have both. And you've got you to link them as well as differentiate them. You know, so you can have someone there observing, and part of the observing is to sense, I feel like I have an identity that's totally separate, but when I'm out in nature, I have the awe, this is probably where Dacker's work comes in, I have the awe of feeling like I am just a part of this larger whole. So you use that observation of the sensation that I'm no longer in my skin encased body to build on the sea, the concept that we get lost in the city life of a separate self where sensation believes it's in the body, but you now have the concept going that's fueled by the sensation of the awe. You, you with me? And then you build on the K, the knowing, so that they go around going, okay, I can go back to the city after my experience in the wilderness for this month or week or three months or three years, whatever it is, and I can then hold on to the knowing that in fact we're all interconnected. The way I end the brainstorm book is this, I say, look, you know, it's really important to savor your life, to savor your bodily experience. But it's also crucial from all the science that exists to serve other people. Every bit of science in a study that came out in July of 2013 by Barbara Friedrichsen shows and her colleagues shows that if you live a life of what's called eudaimonia, which is a life of not only equanimity, but a life of connection to others beyond your bodily self of being serving others, a life of meaning and, and, and compassion. If you live a life of eudaimonia, 
you will actually change the epigenetic molecules that regulate the gene expression to optimize the way you're going to prevent illness like cancer and autoimmune disease. Just look at that study. It'll blow your mind. Uh, it's Barbara Friedrichson, Fred and Rick Sun, F-R-E-D-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. So it's in uh, July, the end of July 2013, proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences. It's amazing because what we know now is what you do with your mind to actually feel the sense of a larger whole, to not only savor but also serve, changes the epigenetic control of gene expression to help you prevent disease. Doesn't, now, someone once, when they heard me say that, says, am I going to live forever? I said, uh, I don't think so. They go, well, what if I live with eudaimonia? Can't I live I said, no. I mean, so just because you're changing an epigenetic control doesn't mean you live forever. Um, the second thing is presence. You know, I mentioned Elizabeth Blackburn and Alyssa Apple's work on presence. So if you have the experience, let's say, in your eco, uh, your eco trans, what do you call them? Eco-psychology, ecotherapy. So ecotherapy. And the ecotherapy experience, you know, where they're getting really present with the crunch of the pine needles underneath them, with the smell of the air, with the moon as it's rising. You know, to develop that kind of presence increases telomerase, right? So this is another really good thing. When you're mindful like this, you also improve your immune system. So in all these ways, we now know definitively what you do with your mind improves the medical state of your body. We also know definitively that what you do with your mind can optimize the structure and function of your brain. And I would just put the simple word on there. Not, I don't think anyone else would agree with that or they wouldn't use the same term. But it increases integration in your brain. So when I go over the, the mindsight skills for the um, adolescents and the adults reading the book in Brainstorm, mindsight is these three things. It's insight, it's empathy, and it's integration. Insight, empathy, and integration. That's a way of defining what mindsight is. So it's a little different from mindfulness, which would more be like the insight part perhaps, but, it's, it's this, but it includes mindfulness, but it isn't limited to that. So what do we mean by insight? Insight is being able to have interoception and being able to have mental time travel, as we mentioned. Empathy is really being able to be present, attuned, and resonate with someone so you develop trust. That's the empathy piece. What's the integration piece? The integration piece is across all these various domains we've been talking about, sensation, observation, concept, knowing, so that a mindsight approach to the ecotherapy would say this. It would say, you know, here's how we would approach our experience here. You're going to have many channels of streaming of awareness. Honor them all. And they each may be different. And just like Rumi says in, in um, the poem called the, uh, guest, the guest, house. guest House, is it? The Guest House, welcome them all in, right? Welcome them all in. They all have something to teach you. And when you create the awe that comes with seeing these huge pine trees and seeing the sky the way it is, the awe, I think, takes the top-down rim elements that imprison you in a delusion of a separate self, and it begins to dissolve that delusion. Now, if we can start doing this with you, you adolescents in the room, you can teach us something because we adults here grew up with this delusion, right? And some ways the culture got us to believe we're separate and got us to believe we can consume infinite amounts and got us to believe that competition is the way to go when in fact we are collaborative beings. 
And if you realize, and so this is what I say in the Brainstorm book, that it isn't just about savoring this bodily self, which is really, really important to do, but also serving. Because it's too big a request to ask ourselves or adolescents to save the world. It's too big to say, go out and change the world, definitively change the world. That's too big. And we know from studies of the way the mind works, if you give the mind a task that is too big, it will withdraw. It will withdraw. <laughs> it's just like when you go to a store, if they give you 12 choices for a cereal, you know what you do? You don't buy any of them. Yeah. <laughs> so a store will only put up three because you have the time to review which of the three you want. But 12, no. It's the same thing. You want to make it so it's a doable thing. So one thing we can do is we can serve other people. That you know you can do. One person, one relationship, one connection with the planet at a time. So if we can put it in those doable chunks, and if we can harness the power of adolescents who have this remodeling going on where their essence is right there, this emotional spark is ready to really infuse the world with this sense of energy and vitality, this social engagement where you guys are right there knowing to collaborate with each other, but we are telling you the adults who create this culture or reinforce it, you know, compete, compete, compete. You know, those are the messages you're getting instead of collaborate. I mean, it's so sad that we come from an evolutionary place of collaboration, but we move to a cultural place to emphasize competition. No wonder people are so miserable and unhealthy. Then, you know, in terms of the novelty, you know, this rim element for adults gets locked into a certain way of doing things. It just does. And that's just part of the risk of having a human brain is you have these things called top-down influences and they constrain you. So think about if we could tap into the, what you guys are all bringing, all the adolescents in the room. And actually, let's take a moment, the adults, and give the adolescents in the room an applause. Thank you for being here. Because this is something you guys don't need to do this alone, but you can really take on the personal leadership about taking on these ideas and making them happen. And we will be there by your side learning from you and supporting you all the way. So the novelty that's there is really this power, and it really is about this uncertainty thing. It's really the power for us, let's say, as adults to say, you know something? I feel more comfortable on my rim and I just want to go home and take a nap. I'm tired, I'm overwhelmed. But rather to come out of that kind of fog and realize that there's a whole set of neural firing patterns we haven't tapped into in our brain. There's a whole way in which we can be where you don't have to be trapped in all of this sameness that adult life can become. That I think adolescents can see the dullness of it and are kind of dreading it. And then finally in creative explorations, you know, this is really a challenge because the mind likes to go with certainty. It really does. It's just easier. It's more predictable. You know, the brain is an anticipation machine. It likes to predict things. So to really ask ourselves to rest in uncertainty, we need to do a little practice. And you know something? The amazing thing about the Wheel of Awareness practice is it's free. You do this practice to develop the hub of your mind, to develop the capacity to drop into this plane of possibility, 
to feel at home with it. I mean, people say, what kind of practice do you do? I do the wheel of, practice, wheel of awareness practice every day. I do it every day. And every day it's different, which is kind of shocking, but that's the way the mind is. It's just different. So, but you can strengthen this integrative capacity that you have. So if people started doing that, just think about what kind of world we would have. And finally, and I know, I know, oh, we have time. So let me just finish this little bit up. What, what do I have? Oh, okay, cool, cool. <laughs> um, so, so finally, what I want to say about this piece of it is this, is if you talk about integrating identity in terms of this, this is, I hope this isn't too long a response to your question, you know, this idea of ecotherapy, but it's the idea of general cultural, the change in the cultural conversation. The way we savor life can be as a me. The way we're connected can be as a we. And, you know, I was going around uh, for a while, and you can see this on the Garrison Institute. I work in New York for the Garrison Institute. We do a bunch of different things. Education, we do things for therapists who are traumatized, and we do stuff on climate change issues. Um, uh, and one time for the climate change initiative, they asked me to come give the keynote address for all these policymakers, and I said, I don't know anything about climate change issues. What, why are you asking me to come? They said, we think you can help. So I go there and I said, what's, what's going on before I went on to do my keynote? And you can actually watch this keynote um, online. They, they have it up. So I said, what's going on? They said, well, you know, we've done a couple things and uh, they haven't worked. I said, what have you tried? They said, we've tried to inform the general population and nothing changed for social climate, for social interest in climate change issues. We tried to scare people, you know, with the inconvenient truth. And, you know, Al Gore got a Nobel Prize and he got an Academy Award and that only made people less interested. So I said, oh my God, that's pretty big. A Nobel Prize, Academy Award, scare people. I said, so you informed them? Yeah. We scared them? Yeah. I said, well, what are you going to do next? They go, we have no idea. That's why you're here. I said, what? I said, I don't know. And they said, well, do something. So, <laughs> so you'll see what I did. I mean, they, they just turned the camera on. I, I said, okay. So I said, look, if you've tried to inform people and you've tried to scare them, how about trying to transform them? I said, what about going from me to we? You know? And so I gave this whole talk on me to we, where not just being a me, but also being a we. Anyway, one of my students, my own, we have this online program, this 96-hour online program. She heard this, and she got in touch with me, and she said, I'm really mad at you, Dan. And I said, what are you mad about? She goes, you, you are really encouraging us to develop our attachment history, do a lifespan review, understand the coherence of our narrative, try to develop this way we understand who we are, live in our body. I said, yeah, that's beautiful. She goes, well, that's all me. I said, that's fantastic. She goes, yeah, but now you're saying me to we? I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, you're saying drop a me and move over to we? I, she goes, I don't want to do that. I like me. So I said, no, I said, not only me, but also we. She goes, well, why don't you say that? I said, okay, not only me, but also we. She goes, but that doesn't rhyme. <laughs> so I said, what do you want me to do? She goes, think of something. So I said to her, I said, okay, 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 I got it. I got it. How about we? M, W, capital M, capital W, little e. We. I said, what if our integrated identity is both a me and a, and a we all in one word? She goes, I love it. So... The, so that's how I end the, the brainstorm book, is this idea of we, seriously, that the identity does, shouldn't drop the me. We shouldn't drop savoring the body, because we're going to get into big trouble, because it's not integrative to drop that. But we also embrace the we, and also embrace the integrated nature of it. So I think we can do this.
So let me, uh, there are a few more questions. Let me just, let, let's just name a few questions and then we'll, we'll bring the day to a close soon. So one, one, you have a question? Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay. All right. So who has a talking strip? Here's one right here. You're, you're eight. Yeah. So the way you're presenting it. Put it right up like a uh, ice cream cone. I don't want to. You don't want the to, then no one will hear you. The way you're presenting it, um, the teenagers or the adolescents are going to save us. Um, I don't know exactly when you were born, but. 1957. I, okay. You're a little young. But I'm a little I, young. Yeah, for, for thank you to have to have the same perhaps memory memories that I do. But comparing, um, you know, I mean, with the same general socioeconomic group um, then as now. When I was an adolescent, there were, we had a lot more going for us in terms of idealism, in terms of weeness, in terms of all of those things that. Or, you know, they later, we or they later became hippies, but, um, and by in multifurcated in lots of different directions, political and otherwise. But um, I actually happen to have a. a Can everybody um, hear? I, I, no. have, I have a 15 year old who goes to high school in San Anselmo, right across the street from where we live. So I am a very exposed to these guys no reflection on any of you or to or to generalize over generalize i don't want to do but i noticed that talking about um devices which we've given very scant um attention to what i see the pa where the passions are or with the devices and with um really uh, um extreme frivolity and just sort of superficial stuff, which um, much more so than with people in my age group when we were that age. And um, I'm wondering how you, what, how you would work with that kind of group, because you were saying get them to bring, bring the great problems of the world. And, and challenge them to collaborate with each other and to solve them. I don't see very much interest. They're interested in their clothes and in their, and in their um, smartphones. And I mean, I, I don't know how you'd... Oh, I think there's a huge untapped potential, so... How would um, you tap it? Yeah. Well, I, I'd start with writing a book called Brainstorm <laughs> and write it for adolescents. You know, I think there's, I think there's a huge, when, when I go around and speaking at schools, I, I, I actually, I appreciate what you're saying, but I don't agree. I think there is a huge, huge readiness uh, for adolescents to tap into something that has meaning for them. And instead, they're entering a culture which, which has been dismissing and disempowering them. And, uh, and I'll be doing just what what you're describing. I think there's a, there's a huge change that can happen. And I'm extremely optimistic about it. Uh, and I think we can make, make it work. I really do. Now, if you're interested in the, in the um, digital stuff, we, we do a conference every year. I teach there each year called Wisdom 2.0, where we, here in San Francisco, or not here, but anyway, down in San Francisco, where you know, we wrestle with these issues about how to make the digital world 
more uh, encouraging of empathy and mindfulness. So there's a lot of wonderful work being done. I work for uh, a number of nonprofit foundations that are really are giving money away to people to try to do that. So I'm, I'm really thrilled. And a lot of those people are adolescents who are doing that work. So I'm, I'm extremely optimistic about it, actually. Okay. Number two. Oh. Oh, yes, yes, here. I didn't see that. Thank you. I just had one to right say that maybe um, your 15-year-old might just, like, they might seem interested in their devices, but they might be more, have more potential than you know. They just might not want to show it to you. Yeah. I don't know. Yes. It, it depends on the person, but they might not be as superficial as you think. Yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you. That's beautiful. You know, I, I think the issue, the issue is um, people rise to the level of our expectations for them. And when I, I, I'm not making up the idea that adolescents have huge courage and creativity. It's just not being supported. Um, and I think it's our responsibility as the adults to create a world that receives them with the dignity and respect that they deserve. And that, that's why I made the joke, you know, how would you do that? I'd start with a scientific book that's a nonfiction book that literally says, here's what the science tells us, now let's get to work changing the cultural conversation about adolescence. And I think we can do that, or we can do that. Yes. Hi, I'm, I'm Samta, and I've come from India, and I live in India. And I'm very, very happy to be here. Thank you, Dan, very much. Thank you. And uh, I had a reflection since the entire day, and I'm just trying to connect in my own mind the dots, and I just want to share the reflection. And uh, in India, we've got a, a spiritual saying called Om Purnamadam Purnamadam Purnamadachade, which is wholeness. Mm. And even if you take away anything from wholeness, it still remains whole mm. because we are infinite. And uh, I'm beginning to see the connection in my mind with when you say to rest in uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And when we are talking about moving to a place where we can be comfortable with uncertainty. And that is where presence emerges. Mm -hmm. And the ability to practice that as a practice, like you said, the wheel practice or mindfulness practices, I think it, in a very simplistic way, it allows us, for example, for me to focus on my breath, it just brings me to the exact, precise, present moment where this is the only reality and the truth, and there is no fear or threat in me. So I'm just looking at how these practices develop our true presence, where everything else is a story, mm -hmm. where everything else that's going around is really just a story. And uh, to add to that, uh, whatever you shared about attachment theory, I've been reading and tracking your books for a while now, and they really, really inform me as a doctor. But I'm beginning to see that these are yet again stories. And of course, they have scientific backing to it. But if I were to choose, now this is again ancient Indian wisdom, that we are whole, and life offers us challenges or experiences to constantly deepen us and deepen our wholeness. For example, we talk about male, female, dark, light, masculine, feminine, things like that. So it's just that every single experience may bring up a nasty part of me, but that is also me. And it develops deeper wholeness within me. So, rather, so even if somebody had a dissociative or a different kind of parenting or different kind of experiences, 
it is just bringing them to a deeper wholeness and awareness about it. And if one can simply rest and really practice any one practice, it could be yoga or mindfulness or the wheel, any any single practice, and just practice that muscle of awareness and to stay in that present moment, I think the other stories can begin to dissipate quite easily. Yeah, you know, I, I share that with you. There was a... Um, uh, a question that came up earlier this morning when I was doing this webinar with these therapists and a mindfulness teacher asked, and, and it builds on your statement, what if someone's been traumatized and had, let's say, a disorganized attachment? Does mindfulness practice by itself help? And the answer is no. You actually need specific therapeutic interventions to support someone's growth beyond just the practice. So, I mean, I deeply, deeply resonate with everything you're saying and even about the story of science. Mm. But sometimes I think we need to look at what the empirical findings show mm -hmm. and then offer an empirically derived intervention like pathways to healing traumatized people who've either in a culture been traumatized or in a family been traumatized so that we can realize that sometimes you need specific interventions that are, that are informed by science fueled by love, but that helped transform a person where just practice wouldn't do that. And I know Jack, who himself he, here, I mean, he says publicly, you know, he himself was a traumatized child and that mindfulness didn't do it for him alone. He needed therapy. And so I think we need to, we need to realize there are stories, let's say about, for example, in this case, how the brain uh, is um, not optimally formed in trauma that mindfulness can't touch. And so we need to do other things to support it so that we really do liberate people to live with uncertainty in, in a way that's supportive. So uh, that, that's what I would say. Uh, I'm agreeing. I also am a medical doctor, so I do look at scientific, and I have huge respect for that. I think I'm really talking about majority and functional people. And there is a gift of science where we really need to. And I'm also talking about body practices as yoga or something, because what I believe, and in my little years of practice, a lot of talk therapy actually re-traumatizes an individual to a great extent if there's non-cognitive uh, yeah, release has not happened. That's a whole other question. That's, yeah. a, that's a whole that's another question. That's a whole question. other issue. Yeah. What, what kind of interventions are helpful? Yeah, so I... Uh, I've got five minutes, okay. Yes, sure, sure. so thank okay. you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for com coming from India. Yeah. Um, now, I know there are eight questions, so let's do this. Um, well, I think we're going to have time for one more. And then I want to bring our session to a close. So the people who were the next four or five questions, I'll do a little book signing at the end. Come to the front of the line, and I'll address your questions. If you want your book signed, I'll do that too. So this will be our last question because of yep. time constraints. Yes. Sounds good. Hi, Dan. Hi. Um, so you've alluded a few times to some of the things that are stressful for teenagers, like SATs and the whole college admissions process. And I'm the director of college counseling at one of the oh. high schools in San Francisco. So... <laughs> What we've done in the last few years is I'm working with colleagues to create um, uh, a model of the teenage brain and mindfulness and how to use that in the college admissions process. So I wonder if you wow. can uh, perhaps, and we started this year, thanks. 
Uh, we started it this year, and it's, I mean, that is the one thing that the teenagers are coming back saying, I just wish we had more of that. Why can't all our classes start with three minutes of breathing or whatever, yeah. you know, the practices are. But my question is, um, could you offer one or two practices that specifically might be used in a college admissions, college counseling um, program, and then um, if if it's not too personal, if you could talk to to the the, the process that you went through with you, your two children, and if you use the Mindsight tools. <laughs> and last question, are they here? Yeah. If they could talk to that. <laughs> and then the third thing is, why is there not a mind up curriculum for adolescents? Uh, we're developing. It's being developed. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank um, you. So that one's easy. <coughs> Maddie, do you want to address the question about uh, my daughter? My wonderful daughter is here. <laughs> She's my main teacher. Yeah. Maddie, do you want to address the uh, question about... Uh, yeah, come up, Maddie. <laughs> come up. <laughs> it's all me. All me. Okay. Uh, I'll let you... Fine. Um, so, um, so first of all, the, the, you know, the simple breath practice in the book uh, that, that's done in Vipassana too, but the wheel practice, I, I mean, is really useful for, for kids, I think, applying to college to be able to be in the hub and see that they have an issue on the rim and to drop down to the clarity of the hub. So that, that would be, that's how I address that one. Uh, what was your other question about... Uh, Oh, the admission process? Well, you just, know. you know, which tools you would, because we're, we're specifically tailoring mindfulness and any tools that address teenagers' experience during the college admissions process, and not just the experience of being an adolescence, but the specific issues that come up related to the whole conversation about college admissions. So yeah. I'm just wondering, yeah. in your, you know, maybe with your clients or with your own children, if you could provide some, you know, some takeaways. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. Um, first of all, in, you know, in middle to upper class schools, this is actually the big form of stress. Mm -hmm. yeah. In public schools, in other regions, this is not the issue. The issue is, can I get out without being shot? And, and can I make it out alive? And, and you know, so there's, there's very different issues. So we're talking about a first world problem, but it's a serious problem because it's stressing kids out like crazy. When I have addressed this in schools to students and to the teachers and the parents, um, what has been fascinating is the response of the parents when I, when I say the thing about, you know, this incredible pressure we have to compete with each other to get better grades than, than our, our peers, to get better SAT scores, to try to rush and get into, you know, this top-notch college so that we can get a top-notch jobs, so we can get a top-notch, you know, make the joke about graveyard, um, you know, people laugh and sometimes they, you know, do these huge ovations when I say the following thing. I say, you know, as far as I can tell, every research done on where you go to college shows there's zero correlation, zero, to how happy you are, how financially successful you'll be, how you'll contribute to society, or your sense of, of uh, leading a rewarding life. None. Zero. Zero. Yeah, but I... So, okay. so I, I tell them that, <laughs> and you can ask Maddie this, uh, but we, we would tell our kids that. I'm, I, I'm not allowed to talk about them anymore because um, uh, they're, they're too old to know better, but I can talk about myself. You know, we used to say that and, and believe it, you know, and, and I, you know, 
Now, nevertheless, there's huge amount of pressure, I think, in an uncertain world, and I'll, I'll just say this, um, and this is what I say when I talk to large groups of parents, I said, you know, unemployment is really high, the world is, you know, really challenged in huge, deep, deep ways, climate change issues, you know, violence, all sorts of, you know, the huge disparity in wealth between the poor and the rich. Um, and that these things are giving us this incredible sense of anxiety. When the human mind has a sense of anxiety, it wants to find something it can do. And really the only thing you can do as a parent is think about getting a good number on some score, like a GPA or an SAT, and then figure out which colleges are the most competitive to get into because they only take you know, 2% of the people apply, or they take 2.7% of the people apply, or they take 3.7%. And, you know, a college is rated on how hard it is to get in. And, and, and so the kids think, well, so there's a, there's a false attempt to gain a sense of security by locking onto these numbers. And, and so I say this to the parents, and the parents have come to me afterwards and said they got a huge amount of relief. I don't know if it helped, well, you can tell me, you guys. I don't know if it helps you at all, but... But for the parents, they didn't know that the research shows there's no correlation between where you go to college. But it's not true. No, but that is true. No, it's not. Because it may be for the first world, but, you know, for, I'm first-generation immigrant. And, you know, f I mean, just last week there was President Obama and Michelle Obama, you know, talking about education and how what a difference it makes for the support that they got to be educated and to go to college and the person that talked before them, Troy, and for segments of the society, it does make a difference. It, it makes a difference for their community. It makes a difference for the socioeconomic status of their families and their children. So maybe for first world uh, type of families, it doesn't make a difference. But a lot of times when I hear that, it's from first world people who went to schools like Harvard and Stanford and so forth that say, you know what? It actually doesn't make a difference. Well, that's nice, but those are for people who already who well, well, had on, that on. experience. But, you know, you're talking about the feeling of it making a difference. When you actually study, right? When you actually study the people who have succeeded in life financially. There's no correlation between where they went to undergraduate school and this. If you study how happy people are, zero correlation. How rich they are, nothing. So. So as far as I know, the research, I'm not, of course, if an immigrant family says, I really want you to go to Harvard, and you don't go to Harvard and they're disappointed in you, that makes a difference to them. So you're, you're using the word difference very differently than the research I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the actual outcome of where you go to college, as far as I know. And if you know other research, I'd love to see it. Sure. I'd love to see it. Because as far as I know, the people who, for example, are running some of the most important conferences in this world, I know where they went to college, and they went to colleges you never even heard of. You never even heard of them. And that's just the way it is. And I, you know, having gone to a fancy graduate school, and I'm not talking about graduate school, by the way, I'm talking about undergraduate, mm -hmm. all right? It does make a difference where you go to graduate school. If you're going to be a researcher, mm -hmm. people look at that. So that's a different thing. Talking about undergraduate. So as far as I know, it doesn't. So you see the people who run these corporations, they didn't go to fancy places. But it's not a question it's not a question of fan I, I going to fancy say. schools. It's a question of going to college. But I feel like we're going we're going away from the question, which was really that regardless of the philosophy behind whether you want to go to fancy school or not, is that teenagers are feeling the stress about that. It's the cultural conversation. Right. And I think it's embedded in your question that it does make a difference. Mm -hmm. And if I were a person working with you, 
I would get very stressed because you believe it makes a difference. Got it. I'm serious. I, I hate to be so straight about no, it. No, I but, appreciate but, your but if, straightforwardness. If, if you're really right, then everyone should be much more stressed. And what are you guys doing here? Get home and study. <laughs> you know, because I, I just don't believe it. I just don't believe it. And I know so many people who went to completely unknown places who are leaders in our world because they stuck with their passion and they followed their true north. They had an internal compass. And that's what we have to develop in kids. We need to develop this capacity to know yourself and have this clear view of your responsibility to the world. And that's not often done in, in, in all the stress we're having people do. So, I mean, you're asking a very tough question. I gave you my response. You fought back with me, so I'm going to fight back with you. I just think you need to be really careful of what your assumptions are because okay. kids will pick it up. Just like right now, I'm very anxious mm. talking to you about it. And, and it's just, I think there's a deeper truth about what has meaning in life that gets lost in this college process that is driving people mad. It's, it, and people are feeling like they're letting their, their families down. There's a high suicide rate. It's an unbelievable amount of stress. And I think it's sort of built into our culture that we believe the crap about this college stuff. It's marketing, you know? too. Well, and it's marketing, sure. There's it's a just. Lot of money and prestigious yeah, I mean, I would just be super careful about that. And I, I, I you know, if there's research to show it, I'd like to see it. But I can tell you that we, I think there's a bigger mission in our culture to develop a deep passion in kids. And, and this is, I'll just want to close like this, and I'm sorry we had this altercation, but I feel very passionate about this, to stand up for the fighting against the cultural myth that these attempts to cling onto certainty by the, the numbers game is actually choking us to death. Yeah. It's choking us to death, and we don't even see it. So part of what I'm going to ask you to do as we get ready to close this is this is something that is going to be a grassroots effort to try to improve the life of not only adolescents, but also adults, and not only adolescents and adults, but the whole planet. Because the planet is waiting for us, for us, to awaken to the reality of how interconnected we all are. And that truth is something you have to experience from the inside out. And we don't give our kids time to develop that kind of inner reflective practice. We're so pressuring them to do something that is artificially you know, pushing in some direction that goes nowhere. And yet we can take a pause, we can step back and say, the science actually supports the notion that a true movement toward health is yes, savoring your life, but serving others. And, and I don't mean to just joke about this word we. I think if we get a sense of identity as a we, then it's going to be clear what you do with your life. And rather than being lost and saying, what has meaning, what has purpose? And, you know, I take care of enough kids over these last 30 years to say, when they get lost in the cultural lie, they get so confused because it's meaningless. But if you let kids get tapped into what's true, then the, the courage and creativity that comes from that connection with truth is going to be fantastic. And I feel incredibly hopeful that we, together, can do it. So thank you so much.
got my blood pressure higher. Oh, thank you. Oh. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.